This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. You can't say Long Beach Press Telegram without saying Jim McCormick's name. For more than 40 years, that newspaper was his life. He worked as the beat writer covering Long Beach State, a copy editor, the sports editor, he did layout, he was the religions editor, and even had a camera in his hand from time to time. So I had three relatives tell me I could come live with them to go to college. One was in Bakersfield, a great aunt. One was a cousin of my mother in Boise, Idaho. And then the other one was my favorite aunt who lived in Compton. So I picked Compton. And this this just tells you what a blessed life I've lived. I talked about that a little bit. She gave up her bedroom to me for two years and slept on a couch so that I could go to Compton College. And my parents took in foster kids for $50 a month and sent her the 50 bucks to feed me. So, so I got through two years at Compton College and was interested only in, in journal. My, you know, most of my classes I was awful in, but I, journalism and photography, I, I just were an obsession with me. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. We've had such guests who are the director of photography for the NFL, who live with ALS, and men like John Benton. It was, it was like all the other cars were like I was dating, and maybe I said puppy love here and there, but I fell in love with that car. I fell in love with that car. It, it did everything I wanted to do, and once I got it sorted, it just would do it without failure. I ran a lot of cars to failure and a lot of different things to failure. I just really liked that combination. Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's take a quick break for our sponsors before diving into our conversation with Jim McCormick. Jim, thank you for your time today. Oh, I'm thrilled to do this, Matt. It sounds fascinating. This is going to be fun because there's a lot of, um, like we just said, a lot of interesting things I, I want to talk to you about. And the best thing about having this is you know people but then you don't really know people. And so this is a wonderful time that I would want to sit down with you and let's have a conversation about Jim, the, the man, the myth, the legend, you know, <laughs> so many people might've seen you, seen a byline, um, all those interesting things that kind of happened in your career, but what shaped your career? Where did you, where'd you grow up? Where, where was Jim the young lad? Uh, I was born in Los Angeles, moved to uh, 1946. Moved, I was born in 42. Uh, in 46, we moved to uh, from uh, Walteria, a little town then near Torrance, doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> My dad hated the traffic in Southern California in 1946. He hated the traffic even back then. Yes. Thank God he's not with us. He, he built... Uh, he built a trailer about the size of this card table, put everything we owned in it, uh, went to DMV to get a license and told told a man in front of him, if I ever get a license for my trailer, I'm moving somewhere where there aren't enough people to stand in line. <laughs> and we ended up in we ended up in Jacksonville, Oregon, and uh, lived there until I was 18, graduated from Medford High School. After going through the Jacksonville school system for the first 11 years of school. Well, how, how was growing up in Oregon back then? Was it fun? Um, think, Wilderness, it, forest kind of all fishing? Of that. Think, uh, think uh, 
of the Andy Griffith show, Mayberry. It was literally like Mayberry. Really? Everybody knew who you were. If you did something wrong, your parents knew it before you got home. <laughs> uh, but at, this, at the same time, if you were ever in trouble, you could stop anywhere and the people would help you. You, you know, we walked everywhere until either we or a friend was old enough to have a car and then we would we would drive we would get to drive then but my world basically uh right up through 18 was about i don't know 15 miles in diameter i mean we went to the applegate river eight miles to the eight miles to the west and we went to the big town of medford about five miles to the east and and that was pretty much it but wow. happy as clams, uh, you know, there was, there just wasn't uh, walking, I'd walk home from Jacksonville, we lived a mile out of town, the first house I'd come to was my grandmother's, who always had amazing baked things on her kitchen table <laughs> for you, you'd rehydrate and refresh and then walk two blocks up a hill to the, to the house we lived in that my dad built by hand. And it was it was idolic. I've met teachers there, and uh, I have a life mentor. I posted a note on Facebook. He turned 92 today, still alive. Wow. That was a sixth grade teacher, my youth minister, my Boy Scout uh, leader, just a brilliant, loving Christian man that just set standards and values that that have uh, have shaped my life since the first day I met him so it, it was amazing when I graduated my senior year in high school just to tell you you know this you have this little tiny town 1100 people and uh, the school the school that I love closed after uh, after my junior year and and consolidated with Medford huh. um, so the principal there was at Jacksonville was uh, hired by Medford for a program called distributive education, and it was designed to help kids that weren't going to go to college. And my plan was to go to college, but what he would do is he would he would find out what you were interested in, okay, and then and then he would go like if you were interested in working in a dry cleaner, he he'd, he'd go to a dry cleaner and sell the guy on the idea of training you. And he, he just got dozens of kids these jobs. Interesting. It, it was amazing, and he was really good at it. He said, I know you're not going to go, I know you're going to go to college, but if you want me to try and find you a job you'd be interested in, I'll try and do it. He says, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a sports writer. So there was a newspaper in Medford, the Mail Tribune, had one sports editor, <laughs> and that was that was the whole show. It's a one man band, and so I came down to California to visit relatives, and then went back home just before my senior year started. And he says, "I got you a job at the Mail Tribune." What? And the guy never interviewed me. He, the sports editor never interviewed me. I just I just started working. And this guy's word must have been gold. Oh, he was, he, you know, he's a, this old, older scholarly gentleman, smoked a pipe, uh, seemed kind of the absent-minded professor type, but he, he was marvelous with people. So, But if he said, Jim, this kid, he's a good kid, yeah. he's interested in, boom, so my he can senior, sell you. So my senior year at Medford, wow. I had my first job as a sports writer, 
and the and the uh, the sports editor there, a guy named Dick Jewett, was just had the patience of Job. And then you know you talk about different stages of your life where things just fall in place for you. If I'd have been in Jacksonville, none of that would have ever happened. But at Medford, not only did I get the job with the Tribune, but I got into a journalism class with a, just an exceptional journalism teacher. And and he had me two hours a day because I was in his study. He was in his study hall as well. And he just worked and worked and worked with me. And then I, I was lousy at English. And they had a remedial, if you were going to college, they had a remedial English class you had to pass before you could go into regular English. Okay. And this this Dealey Wisnet just <laughs> and Dealey was just what you would think Dealey would be just this crusty old lady that uh, had a room full of knuckleheads that she was trying to teach English to and she had her own way of teaching it and it was exceptional I I learned enough English in about 10 weeks as I recall to pass her class and get back in, which was an amazing feat if you'd have seen me. So I'll give, <laughs> give you one classic story of how bad I was at that point. Um, about midway through, well, it would have been like March of my senior year, we were having a staff meeting for, with the newspaper, and uh, Vern, uh, Vern Wisnet, not Wisnet, uh, I'll think of his name in a minute, but my journalism instructor said, uh, made an announcement in class that, uh, again, showing how bad I was, made an announcement in class that uh, typically, uh, uh, typically we have our journalism banquet each year on a Wednesday. But this year I'm um, moving it to Thursday because I want Jim to write the story and he can't spell Wednesday. And this is like after I've been in a class for like six months, and I, n- I never put a D in Wednesday. It was all, always W E N E S D D A Y. Doesn't that isn't that how Wednesday should sure, be spelled? Right. And so, uh, by the time he got through with the sentence, I knew how to spell Wednesday. But that that was the kind of that was the kind of influence that I got from them. And so I had I had a great experience. The editor at the at the Tribune would edit my stories thoroughly and uh and then once a month i had to keep clippings and uh and i'd take them in and he'd get out a ruler and he'd measure them and i'd get 10 cents an inch for the if i wrote a story that was 10 inches long i got a dollar and if it was 20 inches long which as you know is a huge story yeah you don't get many of those no uh it was two bucks and that was one of the reasons i came to love track so much because I also got ten cents an inch for the agate, so uh, it was. It, you you really can't have a more idolic year than I than I had that year. My dad. We had four drivers in our house at that time. My mom, and dad, my younger brother, and I were all drivers, and we had one car. And dad made the rule that any time I had a newspaper assignment, I got the car over everybody, him, my mom, my brother. And uh, he bought me a typewriter, portable typewriter. And then I was off to the races. So what what made you fall in love with writing or decide sports writing? Two things. Uh, 
you know, you listen to a lot of sports on the radio in those in those days. And who did you listen to? Because you're in Oregon, so they don't have a right. pro team. Uh, well, until they had, uh, until the Giants moved to the West Coast and I could get a San Francisco radio station after 8 o'clock, which led me to become a San Francisco Giants fan. On, I listened to the Portland Beavers in baseball, and then, and uh, which was an affiliate at the Giants. And then... Um, Oregon and Oregon State sports, okay. mostly football. But the, but the thing that started to fascinate me, and I don't even know why I got, the, I got a paper the first time after an Oregon State game, like in 1957, Portland, Port, Portland had the Oregonian and the Tribune at the time. And, uh, and Oregon State had a, had a tailback named Joe Francis. He was from Hawaii, and they ran the single wing. It was with Tommy Prothrow before he came to UCLA. Wow. And, and Joe Francis was famous for jumping over people when he ran. He'd hurdle them. Okay. And uh, he was known as Jumping Joe Francis. <laughs> well, you'll love this with your sports photography background. In those days, uh, and this would be 57, 58, and it went into the early 60s as one of the techniques at covering sports, uh, newspapers would often have a photographer in the stands, and they and they would just take a panoramic shot. Mm-hmm. So, virtually every Sunday, and I'd buy the paper on Monday when it would get to Medford. I'd drive in and, and buy it. But virtually every Sunday, Oregonian and and Journal would have this eight column picture, full full width of the page. And with Joe Francis running, and it would have a dotted line of all the people that he jumped over, and I thought that was just what what a that's great what an amazing way to illustrate a story. And then the other thing that motivated me was uh, my uh, I thought my local paper did a lousy job of covering Jacksonville sports. <laughs> they'd, we'd lose by two, and they'd say St. Mary's routes Jayville or something like that, and then we win by 15. and Squeak be, by. Yeah, Jayville edges St. <laughs> Mary's and stuff. So the headlines, which, you know, everybody that ever reads newspapers goes nuts over the headlines. Oh, so, absolutely. So that's what got me started. I can do better than that. Which wasn't necessarily the case, certainly not at the time. But anyway, that got me going, and then and then it came time to go to college, and uh, so uh, my dad made a hundred dollars a week working in a lumberyard, and so we had there was no way I could go to any of the schools in Oregon, so I had three relatives tell me I could come live with them to go to college. One was in Bakersfield. A great aunt. One was a cousin of my mother in Boise, Idaho, and then the other one was my favorite aunt who lived in Compton. So I picked Compton, and this this just tells you what a blessed life I've lived. I talked about that a little bit, but uh, she gave up her bedroom to me for two years and slept on a couch. What? So that I could go to Compton College. And uh, and my parents took in foster kids for fifty dollars a month and sent her the fifty bucks to feed me. So so I got through two years at Compton College, and uh, 
and was interested only in in journal. My, you know, most of my classes I was awful in, but I had journalism and photography I, I just were an obsession with me. So I did find there. I met a benefactor at Compton College, a guy named Bill Shawhan, who uh, was a sports information director there. He took a liking to me. Called uh, my second year there. He called. Uh, called a guy at the press telegram and handled high, uh, high school and JC sports, take the call in stuff, just like the register and all, mm-hmm. every, all of them did. He says, I've got a guy that wants to be a sports writer and he's a good guy. And Chuck said, send him down. We'll put him to work. So he, 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 he comes to me at that time, the paper, the press telegram was the independent press telegram. Independent was a morning paper and the press telegram was the afternoon paper. That's right. And they put yeah. together a uh, high school sports page overnight for the press telegram. So you came in. I started in March, so it was uh, it was a spring sports. And you started to work at five, and then you worked overnight until about four o'clock in the morning until you had the page done, and then you went home. So Bill was Shaham uh, was really excited when he told me that I had the job, and I says, "Well." I, I can't I can't do that I I don't have a car I can't get from Compton to Long Beach at five on Friday and come home at four o'clock in the morning so he, he says I'll take you so uh, for let me see March April May it would have been about the end of so for four months every every Friday drove me down there at Four o'clock at five o'clock at night, and when I'd call him at four o'clock in the morning, he'd drive down from Compton, pick me up, take me home, and that's how I got started at the Press Telegram. Wow! Where, where I ultimately worked for forty-five years, and none of that—I mean, you just John Crabb in Jacksonville, and Vern Woltoff and Dick Jewett in uh, Medford, and Shawhan in. Uh, at Compton, all of those things. But if I don't have those people in my life, I have no idea what I'd be doing. I might even, well, my dad's lumberyard eventually went out of business, so I wouldn't still be working there. But that's where I worked in the summers before I came down here. So just unbelievable. What do you think he saw in you? Uh, Well, you know, I... I can only presu- I can only presume, but I think he he probably saw the same things in me that when you're looking at people you work with, and then later with when I saw things uh, with people I was working with, there there are certain ones you can tell really care about what they're doing, mm-hmm. and they and they and they really wanted want to do it. And they're, you know, they're, they're purposeful. And, uh, and so those people, and then when I got to the press telegram, then th- that staff was just exceptional. Uh, I mean, they had guys that they had three different guys that left the department, become NFL, uh, NFL team PIOs, public information officers. They had, you know, uh, Ross Newhan went to the Times. Uh, John Dixon, who was my mentor there, was one of the best Olympic sports writers in the nation, really prompt. Everybody was just, everybody was just really gifted. And in, 
and they they were really willing to help and invest in what you were doing. And I, they had a lot of part timers at the paper, but I had a I had a big advantage in that uh, I could take pictures. I was taking pictures and and learned so. Did you pick that up at full, at, coll- at college? I, I expanded it. I, okay. My first photography teacher was a guy named Carl Topman at Jacksonville when I was a uh, uh, when I was a sophomore, and and so he taught me the rudiments of photography, and and which I did. I was a yearbook photographer at Jacksonville the last year they were there, not particularly good, but I but I was getting experience. Right. And then spent a lot of time in the photography lab at Compton. And and then I got to the paper. The photographers there were really good, uh, helpful. And uh, so I had this, so I had this opportunity where, you know, where there might be seven or eight really good part-timers and all, all decent writers. But if something came up where my boss at the time, Hank Hollingworth, wanted a picture, he couldn't have, it wasn't, to the level to send a full-time photographer and a full-time writer, or they weren't available, or whatever. But if he wanted a story and a photo, uh, he'd send me. I I just thought I was I got the job by default. Okay. And uh, uh, that turned out to be a tremendous advantage. And then the fact that I liked to photograph track particularly. Uh, made me a favor to John Dixon, who was one of the really preeminent members of the staff. He eventually became sports editor, and he's the guy I replaced when I became sports editor. So uh, just everything kind of worked toward forward, uh, worked toward uh, well for me. Uh, I was there probably about three or four years, and, and the Mail Tribune contacted me and wanted me to come back to Oregon and work for them full time, which was, which was touching. How did they hear about you? They just, they just, they just knew because my parents and and the people in Jacksonville knew the sports editor. And the stuff. town was they, so small; everybody knew what was going on with yeah. little Jimmy down south. <laughs> yeah, that's about what it was. Sure. So, uh, so I said to, uh, they offered me the job. I went home and talked to them, and and I talked to Frank, uh, to Hank Hollingworth, my boss, and said, I, you know, I've got an offer to go back to Medford and work in a paper, but I, I love what I'm doing here. And if there's any future here, I'm, I'm going to stay here. And, and he, and he told me, he says, well, the next time we have a full-time opening, I'll hire you. And, uh, which was kind of a clever promise because everybody there in the department was young and established and there was no sense anybody was going anywhere. About four months after he said that, two guys left. One went to the paper Sunday Magazine, and Jerry Wynn became the publicist for the Chargers. So, uh, whoops! Now there's a spot, and he kept his word. He, they hired me as soon as they left, and and the other person he hired was Lowell Schrader, who was a truly great columnist for us. Another one of our my mentors. And then in those days, they had a high a beat hierarchy. And so, right, you, absolutely. You, you worked your way up to the top, and, mm-hmm. and the top was the Dodgers. Okay. So for the lowest rung was preps. Second lowest rung was Long Beach State. So I covered preps for one year, and another guy left. So everybody kind of moved up a notch, and I got 
Long Beach State. Now, what year is this? 66, 1966. Okay. So. Now, where are you living? You're still, I'm assuming you're out of the place yep. with your great aunt or yep, favorite yeah, aunt. Yeah, uh, yeah actually, uh, I was living in a, an apartment in Linwood at that, at that okay. point. So. Uh, now, at this point, do you feel like you're a Californian? Do you know your way around and you know the beat and the stories and the times? And Well, you, you, you know, as a part-timer, every, everything was piecework. So, uh, and, and that's, a, that's a good question to ask because uh, every, everything was piecework. You got $1.25 for working shifts and there mm-hmm. were, uh, there were night shifts and then there were, uh, there were morning shifts. And I, I worked on the PT, the afternoon paper. So I went to work at five o'clock in the morning and that there was about a five hour shift on that. So you got about, I don't know, seven, what is that? $7 and 50 cents. Right. And then there was another shift where you could, where you put out the, the afternoon final, which was just a street paper. And you, all you had to do was add some horse race results and <laughs> just and, the horse uh, races. Yeah. yeah just uh, <laughs> Big, big deal. It was, and, though. It, it really was. Right, because that's Hollywood Park and Santa Anita back oh, then. All of them, yeah. And, and, and I think people forget how it big was, horse racing was. It was huge. All the celebrities went. Politicians were bookies there. Bookies everywhere. Bookies, bookies everywhere. walking through the newsroom. Right, and yeah. Because so, wasn't Hollywood Park opened up because of um, one of the celebrities didn't want to make the drive into Santa Anita I forgot which famous possible because it, in those times it was all surface streets. It was a it was a road trip. Right. If you wanted to go from Santa Monica to that part of Pasadena, Arcadia, <laughs> you better pack a lunch. Exactly. So, uh, and then uh, in in those days, instead of assigning credentials and stuff to specific people like the teams do now, they just sent two or three photo passes and press passes. To the to each paper, and they could use them any way they wanted. Right. Well, one of, one of the things I, I did was uh, when I'd get off work, I just grab one of the passes for whoever's in town: Dodgers, Lakers, Angels, wh- whoever, what Rams, uh, and uh, and for a multitude of reasons. One, if I if I photographed anything that they liked for the next day's afternoon paper. I got ten bucks an assignment, which was Whoa. was more than I made working the desk shifts. Plus, in those days, they had really good meals in the press box for free. Right. So when you're making like thirty dollars a week or whatever, getting a good good meal. Uh, so Jim's filling the belly, trying to fill up the wallet, <laughs> trying to fill up the wallet, and at the same time, just. Setting there as you as you know you're you're either in the first base dugout if you're if you're a baseball, or you're underneath the basket at a, at a Laker game and you're photographing Elgin Baylor and Jerry West and Bill Russell and Oscar Robertson. Right. And so I used to uh, I used to work. I think one time I worked eighty days in a row. Uh, it was my whole life. I there was nothing else in my life at all. So was the paper that was your life? Yeah, Uh, games, writing stories, and taking pictures. So, how big was the press telegram at that time? 66, 60. It was uh, in in those days. There were there there were uh, uh, 
there was the Herald and the Examiner morning and afternoon paper, the Times and the Tribune morning and afternoon paper, Press-Telegram and Independent morning and afternoon paper, the Daily Breeze, and, uh, and then even all of these papers that are kind of considered periphery papers like the Pasadena Star News mm-hmm. uh, and, and even the Daily News at that time, which was just a throwaway, but still... Uh, San Bernardino Sun, Riverside Press Enterprise, the Pomona Progress Bulletin. Was they it all, the Santa Ana Register back then? It, not, yeah, it was the right. Register. Daily and, Breeze. There's all these little teen newspapers. And Santa Monica had a paper, but right. they weren't little, particularly in sports. Right. Everybody, everybody competed, and uh, and our and the Press Telegram. The, the press telegram had people on all of the major beats, and uh, if you got beat on a story by the Times, you were really irritated. Uh, you you competed on all levels, and frankly, I think the press telegram could compete with anybody. And and there, the the combined circulation was probably oh, I want to say probably two hundred fifty three hundred thousand wow paper, but that. That was in those days the source of news. Sure, that was and, it. And and everybody read a newspaper. Did and that spill into like San Pedro Pacific? Oh yeah. So all the way up into there, down. Yeah, the San Pedro Lakewood. San Pedro at, at its zenith, the Long Beach. It, we our coverage radius was only about twenty one miles, but it, that included about. That included about ten cities. You know, I mean, right. Linwood seriously covered Compton, seriously covered San Pedro, and Carson, and obviously Downey. Long Did Beach you get into Lake there? Lake. Yeah, I'd love Downey, uh, and Bellflower, and, right. and Norwalk, and Artesia, and even up here to La Mirada, and uh, and the and the coverage was the the coverage was intense. I mean, you really really worked hard at the at the peak of my. In 1997, I'd been sports editor for 16 years, and and for a while they moved me into the newsroom. They were okay. doing some juggling around, and so when I when I left uh, when I left sports, uh, we had kind of a bash at Phil Trainey's place, one of my favorite haunts, and I took a picture. It's actually up there in that corner, but there the. There are 34 people in the picture that were involved in some way with the sports department. So that that was how big the sports in the newsroom, the collective newsroom, was about 135 people. Wow. Now, of course, it doesn't even have a sports department. Right. It has some guy in Torrance that uh, hires freelancers and they pick up stuff. So, so it was absolutely the golden age of uh, the golden age of sports. When you were there, when that year in '66, how big was the photo department? I'm going to say they had eight. So and, then you and, would just kind of wherever you could, just kind of go eight, and right and and boxing at the Olympian or wherever yeah, you. Yeah, I didn't do much boxing. I had a ton of track and pro and college sports. Okay. And then you know, in 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 '66 when I became full time, I uh, I covered preps for one year, and then then we had another change, so they moved me to Long Beach State, and I covered Long Beach State for one year, and then 
things started happening at Long Beach State. Uh, they got a new athletic director, Fred Miller. He hired Jerry Tarkanian. He hired Ted Banks, an Olympic-level track coach. Uh, that and changed everything for that school. Everything. And so... Where did he see that? Where did he find Jerry and Fred and just make that well, decision he, to pull he, the trigger? He, he, he had been on that... Uh, Fred had been on the, in the department... I think as a football coach, if I remember correctly, for uh, for quite a while, and or for a while, and had been involved in administration to some degree there. But you know, it was kind of at that time, Long Beach was kind of a teacher college that were teachers and coaches, and they produced some great ones. <laughs> and he had big ideas for them, so he hired Jim Stanglin as a football coach, who was an assistant at USC and had been really successful at Long Beach City College. And so I'm there as a young reporter, and all of a sudden things just start taking off. So I, even though the hierarchy was there for the other beats because of where the paper was located over the next 14 years, which is how long I covered Long Beach State, the Long Beach State beat became as important as any beat in the paper because of its that because of school's location. And, you know, by the, by the time I was... Uh, 35, which is, uh, I had, I'd covered three Hall of Fame basketball coaches there, you know, Tark and Lute and Tex Winter. And I mean, and just, you just say those names and they roll off your tongue so easy, but you think about where else would you say like at UCLA, oh, they had Wooden, Coach K and Bob Knight. Like, that's what you're saying. Long Beach State had three guys that had they have stayed or it, you know, because Duke was a small school, let's say, in the 40s or 50s. Yep. So was Long Beach. But its area of talent was so great. How many big-time schools came in and poached out of that area? If they could have kept Jerry, kept Luke, kept Rex, any of them, what could have possibly happened? Well, you, you, would, like to, uh, you would like to think that uh, they could have become like Gonzaga in basketball. Right. Uh, the, the the reality there was, uh, w- particularly with Tarkane, it came from uh, Pasadena City College and uh, uh, and terrified UCLA and JD Morgan and you know UCLA at the time kind of had a monopoly on what was transpiring basketball wise, not only in Southern California but nationally and and oh, yeah, they had the area of California locked down totally. And they, and I think you could tell that uh, uh, that uh, UCLA JD Morgan particularly had, had a real sense of concern about what Tart could do, and so there were you know they had an NCAA investigation and that made the university president president nervous and he didn't put up much of resistance when. When Tark, uh, when Las Vegas started wooing Tark, and so well, what was the what was the investigation about? Uh, improper uh, uh, improper recruiting for both basketball and football, and the football ones were pretty blatant and pretty egregious. You know, uh, obvious that a couple of players or players' wives had, had gotten money and some real. You, you know, the football program had uh, had a linebacker enrolled simultaneously for 
15 units, I think, at San Francisco City College and 15 units at Long Beach <laughs> City College. Which, now, did you break those stories, or how does that we, work? We, we, broke, we broke everything uh, as, it, as it happened. You know, okay. I went to, flew to San Francisco the day that NCAA had a press conference uh, announcing the sanctions, and and they they made a big deal out of it but it, it if you if you followed it you know uh tark eventually won a two and a half million dollar lawsuit against them for defamation for a lot of the th- things they said and they claimed they claimed they claimed uh people took tests for players and and uh so it was uh it, it it was a real mess, and and Tark was uh, Tark was gone by that. Loot was the one that was the coach, and right, he paid the penalty. Yeah, and now, I'll, and I'll tell you, he was there for one year, but boy, he, he Jerry, he, Jerry uh, was there. Jerry was five years, and okay. Loot, Loot was one year, but and then got the Iowa job, and anybody that anybody that knew Loot knew he was he was uh, destined for the big stage because he he had it all. He was. He was a brilliant coach and recruiter, handsome, personable, beautiful family. You know, just and uh, he always looked too good looking to be a coach. He was so damn <laughs> yeah. handsome. Well, you know, there's a there's a great there's a great story about him at uh, uh, Del Walker, who was a legendary person in Long Beach, golfer and an athletic director at Long Beach City College for years, and he hired Lute at City before. He came to Long Beach, and so uh, so he Dell tells a story about how he's interdo- interviewing these different candidates to be the Long Beach City College job, and he interviews Lute, and uh, Lute leaves the office and walks out, and Dell walks out uh, behind uh, after he's gone, and and his and his secretary said to him. I don't know if he can coach, but hire him <laughs> because Lute was Lute was just impressive in every in every respect. But you, you know, he stood up he stood up for the kids uh, throughout could because everywhere they'd go, there'd be criticism, sure. you know, and and questions about integrity and and uh, Lute Lute was a real defender of his players and and boy, I'll tell you. Uh, I think everybody was lucky that that team didn't get into the playoffs because it had it had talent. Well, they had the two Pondexters, Leonard Gray. Uh, was Glenn on that team? Yes, and ended up being a first round. Glenn McDonald ended up being a first round draft pick of the of the Celtics, and and uh, and Rick Aberick was the original Bobby Hurley. He was a phenomenal. He was a f- phenomenal playmaking guard who'd averaged, I think, the year before at, at Fullerton College, had averaged 32 points a game or something. He was a phenomenal Orange County basketball player as a scorer, but as a as a as a guard, as a distributor, he if you hustled, you were getting the ball. And he was he was a guy that might he didn't, it wasn't the classic at that time, you know, where the point guard everybody runs the wings and the point guard brings it down and dribbles all the way to the foul line and then distributed. Right. He if if he tried if he had the ball and he turned around and you were ahead and he was one 
one dribble up the court, you got the ball. I, I mean, he just, he had court sense. It was amazing. And then their sixth man was Bobby Gross, who was a star of, I think, the 77, was it the 77? Uh, a little later than that, when the Trailblazers won the NBA okay, title. Okay, yeah, right. He and... Uh, With Bill, Bill Walton, yeah. yeah. Bill Walton said Gross was the smartest basketball player he ever played with. And boy, he was something to watch. He, he was he was a joy. How was it as a young man covering Long Beach State with Jerry back then for those five years? Like, like you know, because you're you're writing beats, but you're also trying to like break a story if there is one, find a story just on campus of so and so athlete. I mean, how was it for you back then? Now being thrusted into that beat writer lifestyle. For a school, to not a team, right? Like, if you're covering the Dodgers, it's the Dodgers, but you were covering the school. Right. I covered it. Uh, Sports-wise, I was responsible for everything. You know, a, a friend uh, a friend posted on Facebook the other day that uh, each year he watches a, a uh, uh, different baseball movie for opening day on baseball, and this year he watched... Bingo Long and the Traveling All Stars, <laughs> and I couldn't help but think about about being with those guys because it it, it was you know you just you hate to you hate to get into these the good old days kind of things because sure. ever you know everybody has it but it was it was amazing I, I mean Tark hadn't traveled very much I hadn't traveled very much. None of the player, you know, if if they if the kids were going to Utah in December or Chicago to play a basketball game, and it was seventy five in Long Beach, they assumed when they got to Chicago it was going to be seventy five in Chicago, and it, you know it'd be like twelve or something like yeah, that. You'd be lucky if it was twelve. So, so they'd be in their unlined Long Beach State windbreakers, freezing <laughs> to death, and and they got five dollars a day per diem, and and there would be five. Dollars a, a day, day per diem, and <laughs> and there would be there would be Jerry and an assistant, the trainer, the sports information director, and me and a dozen players, and they'd rent four or five cars, and we'd all cram into four or five cars and <laughs> go wherever we were going. Uh, now, how did but, they take to you, right? Because sure, oh, they were. Jerry was good with you, the trainer Jerry, and the players. Jerry was unbelievable. They they were all great. You, you know, it wasn't. You didn't need to make an appointment through the SID to talk to somebody. You talk to them anytime you see them, and uh, and uh, and that frankly one of the one of the touching things about my career is I'll run into one of these guys uh, at, at some kind of a reunion or something, mm-hmm. and they'll say, "I still have the story you wrote about me in 1967." You know, I was the only guy there. The only coverage they were getting was from me. Right. It was and, you. You were the guy. Because it was Long Beach State and they were in Long Beach, uh, the story was always played well in, in the paper. There's usually a picture. And and uh, so it, it, it was great. I'm friends with... Uh, I'm I'm friends with dozens of them on Facebook and stuff, and it was it was yet coverage wise you had to do what you had to do if they if they lost or they played poorly or something happened, you, you had to write about that. If there were if there were rules broken or or issues that came up, 
that was that was your responsibility and you know and, and in in journalism there's there's uh there's two, there's two dynamics the, the truth and the news needs to be your number one priority so sometimes you have to write tough stories about people in that circumstance you have to write tough stories about people you really like right but it has to be reported and then other times you're covering people you really don't like and they do something well it's your job to report that and uh so uh i mean i had lots of times where there was consternation over stories but uh, but i think ultimately whenever the people that were involved in all those things we get together there there's a, a sense of appreciation for all of us i mean i mean whenever they you know whenever they have a reunion there's three or four guys make sure Jim's coming you know football basketball baseball all of them so right uh, it, it was it, it was truly rich and it was it, it was rich in its simplicity because we uh, you, you know I mean it, it, the bingo long traveling all-stars <laughs> it, it's just it's kind of a it's kind of the way it was here are these guys most of them most of them had never been very far from home playing in madison square garden nassau county arena chicago stadium playing in the all college tournament which is a classic in uh in uh, oklahoma city and and you know you go i, I remember you know so you're meeting I mean, you're meeting not only you're not only covering legendary coaches, you're meeting legendary coaches. You know, Abe Lemons, who was it would have been would have made a fortune as a, as a comedian, was funniest <laughs> funniest guy alive. And and Al McGuire, we're we're in Milwaukee one time, and uh, Tark's going to play Marquette in Milwaukee the next day, and so. Uh, so he goes to to an afternoon take his team to an afternoon practice and Marquette's just Marquette's not quite done with its practice. So Marquette uh, the uh, McGuire comes over and starts talking to Tark who he knew, and I'm standing there and he's got about 15 minutes to go in practice and he says let's go get a beer. He had a bar across the street from the arena, so <laughs> of he, he did. you know he he has his assistant coach to, uh, the the guy that's been with him forever. Tells him finish practice, so we go sit in a bar and have a couple beers. Al McGuire, Jerry Tarkanian, and me, and you, yeah. <laughs> and it's like this is a little guy from Jacksonville, Oregon, who walked down a street to get to town until he was saved <laughs> seventeen. And it's just like, how is this? You know, you think about it now, and it's just it's precious beyond words. Uh, it was just. What were your first thoughts walking into Madison Square Garden? Uh, well, the, the the first thought was, I'm not sure I like this place because we watched the guy <laughs> get mugged as we were <laughs> coming across the street from the Statler Hill. But uh, uh, good old New York, <laughs> yeah. some guy, some guy. We're we're we were literally across the street to Statler Hilton, and this is the night before uh, Tark's game. We're going to a Knicks game, and Tark's going to be on Knicks radio at halftime. So we walk across the street, 
And this, and this guy comes running up to us and he points at this rough looking guy and says, uh, help me, help me. That guy's trying to steal my Nick tickets. And I look down and in his hand, he's got a knife that goes up to about his elbow, holding it inside his hand. I said, the guy's got a knife. So we just run away from him, go inside to, to go to Will Call to get our tickets. And uh, the guy comes in about five minutes later, and he's just been beat to a pulp. And uh, so he runs up to a cop, and he points at some guy getting in line. He says, that guy stole my Nick tickets. The cop says, it serves you right for coming down here. And I'm thinking... I'm, <laughs> oh boy. I'm not, and this is like, this would have been what, 1970 or some 71 maybe. And it's like, yikes. Oh boy. <laughs> how, how was Jerry back then? Jerry was, Jerry was as big a tourist as I was. He, uh, you know, everything, everything was, was amazing. He, he was, he, he was so much fun to, he, he was so much fun to cover because he was just so natural. I, I mean, he, 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 he was an adventure to travel with because if, if we had a, he, if we had a, he, he couldn't exist traveling now the way we travel. Oh, now. no, no. From what I, the stories I've heard, he has no understanding of time. None. 1030, 10.30 flight. He thought that meant you had to be there by 10.30. I don't know how many times. <laughs> You know, I don't know how many times they had to open the door on the plane to let us in because they were all ready to leave. (laughs) Ready to, and you know, you're on, you're in Houston on Christmas Eve, and and it's like, my God, I'm not going to get home for Christmas. (laughs) So because this bozo doesn't realize time. And then the one time, normally Jerry didn't drive, but we we were in Fresno and we were at a hotel. That's home have, for him, right? Yeah, yeah, he yeah he went to school there, and so uh, because Jerry was the only one that knew the, the direct the way to the campus arena, he led. So we line up the five cars uh, in the hotel parking lot. Everybody gets in, loaded up, we're ready to go. <laughs> Jerry turns out onto the street and is gone in a heartbeat. I mean, we can't even see him in like five seconds. So so. We had no, the other four cars are like, now what do we do? You know, there's no GPS yeah, or no cell phone. Maps, no maps. Nobody's map, from the area. So he must have been at the campus like 30 minutes before the rest of, where are you guys? He's, and, but. Because we all see Jerry as the Las Vegas running Rebels oh, Jerry. He was, he, he and. Older, the white shirt, chewing on a towel, surrounded by mega talent. I'll tell you just how how ordinary they were. Uh, we're, at a, we're at a party at Jerry's house at first year at Long Beach State. And, and Jerry uh, Lois, who's, you know, is just an amazing woman, great battler for her kids and her, and her husband. She decides she's going to make some clam dip. Okay. So <laughs> Clam dip, okay. <laughs> so she gets a block of cream cheese out of the out of the 
uh, refrigerator and puts it in the bottom of a mixing bowl. And then, oh, I don't even know why she had a can of clams, but she opens a can of clams <laughs> and pours it in on top of it and then sticks the blades and the beater down in it, turns it on, which turns the cream cheese into a propeller. And the whole room's just peppered with flying clams. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> and, and that's, and that's, I'm telling that story not to make fun of Lois, but to, they were just regular people. Right. I mean. That could have happened to anybody. Kids, the kids ran up and down the hallways at Long Beach State. And uh, and the kids the kids were precious. And, and Jerry was, uh, Jerry was easy to quote, always accessible, really appreciative. He, he only got mad at me once because on, they played at Kansas and were behind 32 to 8 at halftime. I'm sorry. 32 to 8 at halftime. <laughs> wow. And, uh, How did that halftime speech just, go? 32 and, to 8. And then afterwards, uh, afterwards he, mad, he was mad because I didn't put more emphasis on how hard they tried in the second half <laughs> instead of the axe murder and... But but he, he got he got over that. In fact, he got over it about I guess it was about three weeks ago. Three weeks later, SC got clocked by somebody and was down like by twenty six at halftime or something. And and he was talking about how they got wiped out. And I said, God, but they really played hard in the second half. <laughs> So that doesn't matter. It was over at halftime. I said, "Yeah, you got to give him credit for still trying." He, that went on for about two minutes, and then he looks at me and smiles. And, uh, but I, I uh, you know, I just that that was beyond magical. And Luke was different and magical. And then Tex was just Tex was just. He 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 was a brilliant mad scientist kind of basketball guy. So it, should it, he have been wearing a lab coat instead of an actual coat? Because he, boy, would, I'll tell you what he. You know what's, you know my job is obviously is you're looking for the good quotes. You're looking for things that you can hang a story on. Right. And through the course of of well now more than fifty years of doing the business, some coaches some coaches can give you great quotes. And and some coaches never think about what they're doing. You know, they're like they'll win, they'll win fifty to twenty in a football game, and you go interview them. And they spend the whole your whole interview griping about the officials or something. You know, they just don't have any sense. Tark was Tark was free form. He was a white riot. Wayne Howard quotes were the funniest that you'd ever see, but it was all in the presentation. So they didn't come across nearly as good in print as they did in person. And then Dave Curry, the fo- those are two football coaches, really droll. But And his comments would be really droll, but they'd be hysterical in print. Well, Tex, a word never came out of his mouth that didn't have a purpose. And, and his quotes were just, they were always money. I mean, they translated good to print. And they and they were relevant with what he was talking about. And, and guy, he was, he he was just. We we remained good friends forever. Oh, that's yeah. great. What was the technology like for you back then in those late sixties, early seventies, for your getting a story out? Tell me about that. Well, this, now we're going back in my day, kind well, of right? No, because, but, because only because. 
it's important for people to understand the absolute pressure it was to write a story like that. Well, let me, let me you know, I'm, I mentioned before we came on that, I, that I'd like to help out Tim Bird at OC Sports Zone. Right. So this, this is what uh, I, I do today. When I, when I cover an event for Tim, and it's, it's usually football, the instant the game's over, I take out my cell phone. Okay. And I walk over and I take a picture of two or three relevant players from the game. Okay. I, I message it to Tim with three or four paragraphs in a message about the game. Okay. And so literally within 10 minutes after the game's over, he can have a picture and a short story of a game. And, th- and this, I'm, this is not unique to me. This goes on everywhere. Everywhere in the country. Right. Everywhere in the country. When, when I started, you, uh, you, had, uh, you had multiple ways to get your story to the paper. You, uh, you typed it, and if you were at a bigger event where there was a Western Union operator, you handed it to them, and they sent it as a telegram directly to the press-telegram office. If you weren't at a big event, you found a phone, and you read your story to somebody who took dictation. On the other end. On the other end, okay. and typed the story. And so another Tarkanian story, Tark's, Tark's first Tark's first road game was at Chapman when he was at Long Beach State. Okay, not that far. Not that far. But Chapman was pissed because the, the previous coach, Randy Sandiford, scheduled the game before they hired Tark. Oh. So they hadn't, and so they were, so they were really mad that that Long Beach State was playing him with Tark and and the new kids on the block. So the instant the game was over, they turned off the lights and said, "Get out." And so I'm in, you know, I've got a story to file. So this, and I go by this place every time I'm in Orange. The only place I could find open was a liquor store on Chapman going just before you get to the circle. Okay. So I talked to the guy there. He let me stand at the counter and (laughs) and type my story on on the counter of the liquor store. And then I went outside to the payphone and called the paper and read dictation. Went home, packed a suitcase, and left the next day for on a road trip to Oklahoma City. And uh, so you did anything. I I remember walking through the snow and <laughs> a the, liquor store. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just can't imagine this you, professional you, journalist standing in a liquor store saying, "So so and so had so many rebounds, so many points, so many scores." Yeah, here half time. Yeah, half time. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, later we got. Uh, we got telerams, which were giant, as big as a suitcase, and it was kind of like a copier, and you could send your pages that way. You had to carry it around. You had to find a phone connection. Oh, God. I remember, I remember uh, covering a football game in Stockton where it was a Saturday night, so we arranged in advance to have the Stockton Western Union office stay open Till I got my story to them, so they could send a telegram to the paper. We had a, tele, a Western Union teletype right in the right in the right. At the paper. Now who makes that arrangements? We do. We phoned and and let uh, them know that we got a report yeah, we coming get, up. And right and uh, does that cost extra? It did. And wow. So uh, 
so the game ends. I type my story and uh, and uh, call the Western Union office. And the, the guy says, I'm tired. Can I send, I'm going to go home. Can I send it Monday? So I'm arguing <laughs> Saturday night. No, you can't. You've got to send it right now. And so we're arguing back and forth on the phone. They finally did it, but he wasn't happy about it. And and so they were, you know, you just, and then when, when we got computers, you know, the big breakthrough was in 1984 with the little uh, uh, Radio Shack uh, T80s, T180, whatever it was. And uh, that revolutionized everything because before that, you had this, again, a computer that would, it would handle 800 characters at a time. Then you'd have to save that and do an, remember where you were and do another take. Oh, boy. And then, and they cost about $6,000. But the, the, the little telegrams were just like even smaller than your console there. And they were strictly for, of word processing communication and I, they had put in a budget uh, $6,000 for me to get one of those big uh, telegrams and I think I was able to buy 12 of the TR, uh, TRS-80s is what they were, Radio Shack and, and they were the go-to for reporters for probably about six or seven years and then the demand diminished and they kind of Radio Shack went out of the computer at least the portable computer business but they were amazing you you know you could take them anywhere and and uh, that's so, so crazy I was, I was able to outfit almost my whole staff reporting staff with with teller, with the TS, TRS 180 TS 180s and uh, so the, the evolution was remarkable all, all through it the the ability to communicate communicate quickly now is is just jaw dropping. How did you juggle between okay, you're gonna cover in football, it crosses over into basketball, and then did you cover baseball, track, and like juggle all those sports at Long Beach State? Yeah, you kinda you kinda you kinda picked your spots. Plus in those days you worked in the office too. So so I did layout and copy editing and you had you had nights where you were at games, and you had other nights where where you were in the office, and it was it was a, a multitude of skills required. But it was really it gave you a it gave you a real sense of every part of the operation. You know, if you were only a right. writer, if you were only a writer, you didn't fully understand necessarily how your performance on deadline impacted the people in the office. Right. So, but if you're in the office one day and then and then and you're taking say a story from Gordy Varell for example and then and then the next day you know Gordy's in the office and he's waiting for your story you right. know how important it is to come through for Gordy because he came through for you the right. night before or the week before so it, it was it was all it was all really really fun did at any time did you think you were going to leave the PT in those early years Four or five, or did you start to feel like I'm going to keep Southern California home? Well, uh, there were. Uh, I was offered in '84 after I'd become sports editor. I was offered the job at the Seattle Times, and I and I toyed with that and kind of screwed around in the, in so much that they lost interest in me justifiably, and and uh, I. Uh, talked to the Sacramento Bee once and then there was a time when the section was in a lot of turmoil 
Um, when I when I looked into a couple of times, actually, when I looked into maybe teaching journalism, I thought that could be, and I thought I could be helpful in that regard. But again, everything ultimately just seemed to align for me. I got at the right time. I got good advice, or or good a good thing would happen, and I ended up staying there for forty five years. And I and I'm really grateful I did. You know, you you wonder should you stay at one thing all your career, or should you move move about? And there's there's reasons to consider both. Right, right, and there's and there's value to both, but you can only do one or the other, and uh, and I really, really love the Press Telegram. The Press Telegram, you know, Long Beach is kind of a city into itself, and it's and it doesn't always do a great job of finding itself, but it's still a remarkable town. And I mean, a, you worked in a city that's had a lot of change, a lot of change. But, you know, one of the constants in Long Beach was its sports history was just astounding. And, I'm, you know, you look at Poly High's had more pro football players and Wilson's had more baseball players than any high schools in, in the country. And, and so these kind of these signature sports uh, get a lot of notoriety. But women's golf was got great support from the city of Long Beach. Billie Jean King... Uh, uh, Ron Allison and uh, coaches that coach women's track and and you know yeah athletes, Long Beach and, Long Beach was dumping a ton of Olympic athletes out of oh, there at it's, the time it's it's sports history on on every level is just just phenomenal and and there was a you know you want to you, you want to feel like what you're doing is has some value to somebody. Sure. And, and, and sports carries a different weight than, than obviously news or, or opinion. But the, the people of Long Beach so appreciated the press telegram. It was an integral part of their community. And, they, and the relationship with the sports section was intense. And in how regard? Uh, well, well, it was interesting. Uh, lots of complaints. Uh, usually, disappointment if something that they thought you should have covered didn't get coverage. Didn't get right. covered. You know, you know, they felt like you weren't at so and so event. Right. right. You're and always going to get that, right? You're, yeah, you can't exactly. be everywhere. And you know, it. Those things actually would annoy a lot of people. You, you get people on the phone, and they're. Uh, you know they're griping about one thing or another, but my thought always was, this is really important to them, and and uh, and then of course, over the years the friendships and the feedback and and the respect really ultimately that uh, you you received. I, I'm really glad I was there when I was there. It was the, the golden age of sports, journalism in Southern California and probably in the nation, to be honest with you. And and I was fortunate enough to retire just at the right time because about, you know, my whole career was at Sixth and Pine and, and I retired in September of 2006 and they moved out of the building about two months later. Right. And they bounced around since and the papers got smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's uh, and it's a real loss for Long Beach, frankly. And uh, it but, really is. 
It is because you have. It's a shame. All of these things, you have no access to substantive local news, and it's a and it's a heartbreak for everybody involved. And that so, is a big city with a port and a giant amount of population, and all, and you would think here in the middle of nowhere, it does not get the treatment it deserves. And it's and it doesn't get the treatment because it's owned by people that have no sense of Long Beach. You know, even even in the tough times, the paper was making a profit. But it was... What times were those? When you're... Even, even up, up in recent years. Okay. But it's part of a group, and, and, and they either need money for loans that were taken to, to pay for the paper, or, uh, or, the, or, or not the paper, but the group... And uh, or they wanted more profit, so everything keeps getting slashed and slashed and slashed, and the customer gets less and less and less for their money, and it's 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 really it's really sad. When you were covering anybody at Long Beach State in those thirty thirteen years, did you ever have a time with like a subject where it was a difficult to cover the story, and it was like a struggle, or there was an issue, and how you dealt with that? Because you're a young guy at the time. You know, uh, I mean, you're I probably to, younger than some of the coaches. Uh, at first, at first, probably. Uh, you know, I, I don't. Uh, I don't remember a lot of issues. I had I had to write tough stories, and you know, athletic directors getting fired, coaches getting fired. Yeah, you get a uh, lot of that, right? Yeah. Uh, Not everybody's like. Olson, who gets to move on. Right. Some guys you get know, the axe. Yeah, Tex, D- Dwight Jones got fired right after he'd uh, gotten a team back in the NCAA playoffs the first, the first, their first year off of probation. And uh, But I, I, I was pretty pragmatic about it. I, I you know, you, you watch the, you, you watch the news now and I, and I think, uh, when I when I look back about it, the, the first thing I remember, I mean, I wrote and edited, you know, thousands of stories in forty five years. Oh, and, at and least, I, right? yeah, and <laughs> tens had, of thousands, and had lots and lots of fun and enjoyment and satisfaction out of all of them. But when I when I look back on my career, the first thing that comes to mind are four stories I screwed up, you know, and in the environment that I learned my journalism. There was nothing worse than being wrong. When you wrote a story, and if you and you were wrong, well, two of them I wrote were in sports, and and they were comical. They, they were about uh, I I reported uh, well probably the the most classic one is I reported that Mark Spitz was going to attend Long Beach State because <laughs> the. the, the Long Beach State coach was Don Gambrell, who became Olympic coach as a great coach. Uh, but uh, and he thought he had him, and but he didn't. And you know, he went to Indiana and had had a phenomenal. What year was it? Like 72, 71, 72, right? And yeah, maybe even a year or two earlier than that. But but that's funny. Sure. I, I mean, now that's boy, you're an idiot on that one, and and you laugh about it. But you were going on the info you had, right? Yeah, exactly. So, okay. And 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 everybody's had a whiff like that. And there was another one on a basketball player that turned out not to be. He was actually coached by Dick Vitale in uh, 
in high school. His name was Les Kason. He's a 6'10 kid, and everybody thought he was going to be the next big deal. And Tark was sure Dick was going to deliver, and he didn't. And Kason <laughs> didn't, didn't, never turned out to be much. But then I had two stories that I edited that I was the editor on where we made errors on them. And, uh, boy, they, they haunt me to this day. I just... Uh, uh, one of them was a column that was critical of a local high school principal and in just one paragraph. And I, and I had a, one of my guys told me, you know, you, re, you don't need to, you don't need to run that paragraph. And I, and I ran it anyway, kind of supporting the columnist. And, uh, what did the paragraph say? It was just critical of okay. something that overly that, critical. So, yeah. Borderline personal or just no, critical? Just, just critical. Okay, but it wasn't accurate. Oh, so uh, which I didn't know at the time. Sure, but um, so that one that one will bug me to my grave. Do and you then, run a retraction on something like that? Well, I, I learned of, of I learned of its inaccuracy like a year after it ran or something. Oh, a year later! Yeah, wow. So, okay. But I, I mean, it just—I mean, I, that that bothers me because it was a newspaper that whacked a guy that didn't deserve to be whacked, and that's the last thing on earth, in theory, you want to do. Certainly, right, absolutely. You to do. And then the other one was bizarre. It was uh, somebody called in and told us about this couple uh, that had uh, six or seven kids, and the mother and. Uh, her partner it was a mixed group. He had some kids. She had some kids. They were they were physical uh, trainers, trainers or martial arts stuff or I don't know. But anyway, these kids were totally disciplined, really well groomed. They marched to school and and uh, and they were just adorable. Everybody in the neighborhood was going crazy about how cute they are and what a sweet family it is. Yada yada yada. So I had to call them. This was when I was in the newsroom again. I had a columnist do a story on it. It was really well received, and and uh, it was a it was a popular story. And about three weeks later, uh, I get a call from this guy, and he says he wants to talk to me about that story. And I I said okay. And he says four of those kids are mine. And and he says and and I had no idea where they were until a friend of mine sent me your story. His, his wife, he, they li- he lived up in Napa with his wife and their four kids, and one day he came home, they're gone. And she just hooked up with a boyfriend from high school, which was this guy. It's just, fortunately, the guy was really gracious about it. But, uh, you, you know, you, you think about, okay, you need to cover all your bases. He, boy, you talk about taking one in the ear. You had no idea... But in retrospect, you think, you know, I should, since it was a mixed family, maybe one of us should have asked, well, where's the father and the mother of the, you know, where? where right, the other party. Yeah, just, but, and. Does something will, like that happen because you get too trustful in your subject? She says it's this, he says it's that, yeah, and you, you go... You, you know, I think with with the line of questioning we did in it, I don't think it ever came up. 
And that was probably our mistake. Both, I had a really experienced columnist do the story. And then, I, should, I mean, I've been in the bed, by that time I'd been in the business probably 38 years and I, and I should have been bright enough to say, well, you know, this is a mixed family, where, where are the other parents? Uh, but I wasn't and because because it was cute and uh, you know we had an old copy desk guy named Stan Stan Leopard one of those old school you know the uh-huh. really like guys on the desk and his motto was never over verify a good story <laughs> <laughs> which in this case was a mistake right so but it uh, the, sometimes it, those old crusty guys know what they're talking about it, the whole thing the whole thing ultimately was just really really uh I, I look back on it you know i tell the story sometimes when it, when i was when i was 15 or 16 my grandfather retired and i told you they lived a couple blocks from us and every every day uh my grandfather would walk a mile to town okay and sit on a bench with a couple other old guys outside the tavern i don't know that they ever went in but they sat outside the tavern <laughs> And they just reminisce, uh-huh. and I didn't get it. I just what a waste of what do you what do you talk about for every day like that? Now I get it. You know, when I think back, he was in the Navy and and he had some different adventures. Lost an eye in an oil field accident. He had quite a his own story to tell, and it was a, it was a, in a totally different level. He lived through the Dust Bowl and. Uh, the depression and so his his life story was far more complicated than mine but when I, when, when I look back at I still see myself 13 years old walking down 3rd Street in Jacksonville and uh, no clue what I'm going to do or what I'm going to be I like sports but that that doesn't at that point it doesn't translate to anything and then and then just the sequence of events that have just just happen with people People being there at exactly the right time, and and bringing me through this journey, right up to uh, and including Joan when we my first marriage had hit the rocks and and uh, so she's working at Compton and I'm writing sports releases for them and and uh, so we started dating dated for 13 months and got married and and our. 44 years together just been unbelievable it's just amazing so every everything every good thing that can happen to me i think has happened to me and i i don't know why but i'm internally grateful what's the best story you've written you know, the the best story is one uh that I, that, and it and it turned out really well, and I got a lot of help from Lowell Schrader on it. But uh, it it came. It George Allen had been rehired by the Ram, by the Rams, and he was fired after two. I think it was two exhibition games. Right. And uh, <laughs> so I, exhibition games yeah. get you fired. And so I'm I'm working in. Uh, in the office when it happens. Okay. And our Ram rider, real knucklehead, uh, is home. So they call him and say, uh, tell me, you know, that Rams have fired George Allen. He says, it's my day off. Get somebody else. Which, 
we had a new managing editor at the time, and he was fried over the response. I and can, yeah, absolutely. People, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's part of the job. You get down there. So I'm the only guy in the building, you know, as a sports writer. So he sends me to, to do this story. So uh, his office was in Recreation Park uh, in Long Beach. And, of course, everybody's there. Bill Maher uh, was writing for the Times, who was a really good writer. And uh, so everybody's interviewing George, and uh, everybody, the other guys ended up writing kind of a straight story about, you know, him. But I, I was fascinated by George's behavior, and, and he was, he was, he tells this story about how, uh, difficult it is coaching for the Rams and he and he tells this story about he's in uh, they're in training camp at Cal State Fullerton right and at lunch they have they have a buffet line and in uh, in both buffet lines they have soup but they only have crackers in one of the two lines (laughs) And if you know George, you know this. So he keeps complaining to this kid who's working, you know, student that's sure. working. And, and the kid tells him, well, if you want crackers, go in the line where the crackers are, <laughs> which just drove George. And so that was the focal point of my, pick, my story. And that uh, George wanted crackers in both lines. And... Uh, this Lowell Schrader really worked. We worked long and hard on the story, and I led off with that. But it turned out to be a great story. And the and the kind of the, <laughs> the neat thing about that story was, if you were a George Allen fan, you understood what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And if you were a George Allen detractor, or thought he was nuts, and I was in that camp. You thought that story showed that. You know, right. just get in the line with the crackers. What's the big deal? Well, th- the bonus to that was years later, when I was sports editor, he became the football coach at Long Beach State. Yes, he did. Yes. And I got to spend some time with him as a sports editor and, and watched him coach five games. And and I became amazed at his genius. I became a huge George Allen fan. Every football game I watch now, I think of George Allen. You saw the crazy. I saw I saw the brilliance and the right. crazy. Yeah. George, you know, George got, they played Clemson, got murdered. I think they got murdered at Fresno State, but they played, uh, they played five home games and won every one of them. And in every one of those games, George never made a decision that reduced his team, team's chances of winning. It was it was really remarkable. And the people he was coaching against, every one of them made a coaching mistake that cost him the game. And and from that day forth, when I see a high school team that's fourth and two on their own 30 and they go for it. Right. <laughs> George is spinning in his grave. Uh, I, I see the game through, yeah. uh, through his influence on me. And he, he was truly brilliant. He was funny. 
we had dinner two or three times. He, he always he always included Joan in the conversation. You know, what do you think about a new stadium <laughs> in Long Beach? And Joan, you know, uh, what do I care about? Yeah, I don't stadium? care about Veteran Stadium. <laughs> yeah. But it was uh, he 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 was amazing. So that was by far, I think, my best story. And uh, another story I was really fond of was one on Fresno State. Uh, Fresno State was was playing Long Beach State in uh, in Long Beach on a Saturday night. Okay, and they're uh, but they knew that on Sunday the NCAA was going to announce that Long Beach State was going on probation. So they called on Saturday and said they couldn't get to the game because of snow. And uh, so the game was canceled. And then the next day, Long Beach State was put on probation and Glenn and, and uh, Roscoe Pondexter were suspended for a while. They got a court injunction because no, there was no due process and got to finish the season. But anyway, <laughs> I found out that uh, the Fresno State team had actually driven to San Bernardino and spent Saturday night in a motel in San Bernardino. How did you find that out? You know, I can't remember where I where I got the tip, but I I, I did all of the, and so, uh, so that was a story I wrote about the Fresno State Snowbirds, and uh, <laughs> then they had to then the two teams they rescheduled the game for the end of the season, which it was Long Beach State's last game because they weren't going to the playoffs. Neither was Fresno. They played in Long Beach, and Long Beach just annihilated them. Everybody was back, but the uh, but the Snowbird story that was that was good reporting. You could you know in those days you you'd uh, you know if you're wondering if a recruit was coming in or you're thinking they're going to interview a coach, you just call you know call American Airlines. I've got a flight. Uh, I've got a friend coming in on a flight from Chicago. I'm not sure when he's when he's coming. His name's Tex Winter. And oh yeah, he'll be here at ten thirty. You know, you right. could, you could. There were lots of tricks and things you could do that, that they're not as easy to do now. So, is there a story you wish you could do over? Well, you looked at it maybe like a week or two later and was like, ah, oh, if I just had done this. I I, I think I'm going to guess that you and I have a lot in common in that regard. Basically, I'm, I'm guessing virtually every picture you look at, you see something. If I can, if oh, I you can always you, tweak it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, usually when I read a story from the past, I'm pretty happy with it. But I almost always think, you know, I, there's too many words here or that wasn't that wasn't quite the point I needed to make or something along right. those Move lines. Right, this We're, quote here, yeah, I buried the lead. Exactly. You... you uh, like uh, Friday night in this football game that I covered, Fullerton, Fullerton, Troy, uh, the Fullerton quarterback threw six touchdown passes, and I mentioned mentioned a couple of guys that caught caught one, but I left out a guy that caught two. So that's, I mean, that's bugging me today. In fact, I'm <laughs> going to talk to Tim and see if I can add it, update the story to get the kid's name in. If if you get your name in the paper for catching one touchdown pass, you ought to get it for catching you two. Get for two, yeah. So yeah, you just uh, it, it, you know you want to. 
when you recognize what this means to the other people, you know, the people you're writing about and the people that that are reading it, you you really want it to be well. Frankly, you want it to be perfect. Sure, it, it never is, but you that's that's your goal going in, and uh, when when that isn't a priority, then you shouldn't be doing it. So. so- in 1980, the paper calls and says, Jim, come on in. It'll take you from your beat, and we want you to come in inside. It, what was that like? What was going on at that point? Well, um, the, the, paper, uh, the paper had just kind of gone through a political scandal in the, in the town. What happened? I, well, I'm unaware was, of this political it was, scandal. It was, Let's uh, change this podcast to investigative <laughs> reporting right now. You know, <laughs> the, the details kind of dim with dim with time. But oh, come had, on now! Was there a scandal? No, it, it was more. It was blood. more like uh, <laughs> Sam Cameron and and a couple of the top executives were kind of. Uh, playing too big a role in in the city's uh, politics. Okay, and so. So the corporation was uh, uh, the corporation was upset about it, and uh, they brought in a new executive editor, an executive editor that actually had worked there previously, and a new managing editor, and told them to kind of and a new uh, and a new uh, managing uh, general manager, and told them to kind of clean things up. So they okay. they it was. We were kind of set in our ways and and kind of casual, and so they came through and they they cleaned out a lot of people. There was a there was a lot of turnover, and for the uh, better, do you think at that time? Well, uh, or maybe some unnecessary change. I, I would say it, we just kind of went in a different direction. So it was it, it, it brought in some new energy and okay. and. Uh, also new resources because the, you know the corporation was supporting it and uh, so they went through it in the newsroom a, a lot of the news level editors uh, were replaced and the managing editor who's still there rich archbold he's the exact he's i think he's just a columnist now but um he he was a big sports fan, so he he and and uh, the sports editor at the time was a guy named John Dixon, who was just an absolute hero to everybody in the department. Uh, but he and he, uh, Rich wanted to help, and John didn't want help. So uh, after a time, they uh, they decided uh, uh, they decided that. Uh, John had moved, John was really good with business that he'd become the business editor and they'd look for a new sports editor. And uh, I actually thought at that time about getting out of the newspaper business because I, I thought that, uh, well, if they hired internally, the likely candidate wouldn't have been a popular choice with the staff and certainly wouldn't have been one that I would like to look forward to and and. And they again, since they hadn't hired anybody inside, since these new guys had got there, I assumed they were going to go, go elsewhere. Go right. But after, but after a while of uh, looking at they, they John recommended that they interview me, and they did, and I got along well with Larry and Rich. And you know, Rich is the one I'd written the George Allen story for, and and. Uh, um, and I'd done a couple other pieces that, that he'd requested. So 
I don't know, again. Did you feel like you wanted to move inside and start doing management? Uh, my, my, because 13 my, years is a beat writer for the same beat. And it's kind of like deja vu. It is. And my, my sense probably was that he wanted to, he wanted to hire somebody that, that he could have an influence over. Okay. And, uh, and of course he was really helpful. So, uh, and, and, but the, a lot of people in the staff felt the same way that this is, you know, I'm going to be richest guy. So it took me a while to establish my own identity, but okay. you know, Rich is Rich is a really complicated guy to work for. There were times when he was just really frustrating, but there were a lot of a lot of times, particularly in in my formative years, where where he was he was really helpful and and he would listen to me. Okay. So uh, uh, we. Uh, because you had to kind of learn to run a department. Well, uh, you want to know an interesting story? I had no management skills at at all. I had no management background. But the one the one area of experience that helped me the most was uh, in nineteen sixty seven. The, the guy that had been the journalism instructor and the photography instructor at Compton College retired. Okay. And they hired an English teacher and a uh, and a um, an English teacher with some journalism background to to do the yearbook and the newspaper and teach English. But they they had two they had uh, four hours on Tuesday and four hours on Thursday uh, classes in photography. Okay. Uh, to teach in the middle middle of the day, ten o'clock and ten to twelve and one to three, and they couldn't find anybody to teach the class. So again, one of these things that happens to me that just is life changing. On Friday before school starts, they call me and ask me if I'll teach those classes, and. Uh, all right, I'll, I'll go take, I'll <laughs> okay. take a look. You know, no interviews or anything. They're desperate. So, wow. so I go in and I start on on uh, Tuesday. And I ended up being there for nine years. And my first year, we had eight students in all of the classes. And and I was a teacher. When I, when I left nine years later, I had... Uh, we had like four part-time instructors. The reason I left is because they had they had so many photography classes and students. They had to hire a full-time teacher. And they asked me if I wanted to do that, and I said no. I'm going to stay where I am. But we we had something like four part-time teachers, twelve classes, and 150 students. Wow! And and the the things I learned from that shaped my management uh, my management identity. For the, okay. rest, for the rest of my life. And the one thing I learned is that the people you at, that you answer to, if they're if they're supportive of what you do, uh, they're far more valuable than somebody that's even just neutral. And if you if you've got somebody that's supporting what you do, you get things done because because they'll they'll support those efforts. And then the other things. The other thing I learned, which I just really clung to, is uh, 
is talented people don't need to be told what to do. They need a facilitator. They need the resources and the encouragement and a little bit of direction and whatever you think they can do, they'll do even better than you can imagine. Right. And and that photography, you know, you have no prisoners. They all want to be there. Uh-huh. And uh, and I had uh, and and the class the classes taught me far more than I taught them. The, the students taught me. And so when I got to the, when I became sports editor, I had a really gifted department, a really experienced, really good guys. And, and the key ones, the, the older guys really supported me because they'd worked with me for most of them for 14 That's years. That's immensely helpful. Oh, oh pure, my God. Peer credibility at that time was your number one priority. Well, you're if you one were of a them. journalist. Yeah. You're one of them. You've exactly. been through the... If, if Gordy, if Gordy Burrell or Lowell Schrader or Jim McCurdy or one of these guys tell you they they think you're good, then then you've earned it. Right. Because they're, it's not something they're they're going to say without any any meaning or value. So that's that's how I managed the, the department. And um, did it take you a couple of years to get your feet under you and feel like, okay, I know this now. Well, uh, you, you remember when we were talking about horse racing at the start? Yeah. <laughs> my first my first decision at, as sports editor was to drop the horse racing charts. Oh, Jim. <laughs> oh, I could have saved you those uh, writing my, calls. and. My second decision a day later was to put them back in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you, I got... The, the single copy sales guys <laughs> in a meeting with my the guy that had just hired me, I was pinned to the wall, and I came to love circulation guy. That that was another great thing about being sports there. You just get to see. You think you know. You think you're the star in sports. You know, right. we're the darlings. Yeah, we're the darlings, and and. We couldn't carry the, the briefcases. About ninety percent of the people advertising and what they go through and circulation and sales, all that all stuff. Of oh. it. So, but uh, okay, hold on though. What in God's green earth made you think to pull horse racing for one day? What was your well, beautiful I, insight? I just I just ran the short version. I didn't take the results out completely, but the charts take up a massive amount of space. They do. They do. And. Uh, and my opinion was they weren't worth it, but my opinion was wrong. So <laughs> how, uh, how much backlash was there immediately? Oh, I mean, the meeting was the next day before noon. Boom. Oh, yeah. And, so how and, are we putting this back in? Was that the conversation? Like just <laughs> the, you know, we all laughed about it later, but sure. Uh, that our uh, our circulation single copy sales guys, a little Bert Fleischman was about four foot ten and. I, I think he almost exploded in the meeting, but I, I came to love him. He, boy, you talk about your tough SOBs and what what they. He ended up in the hospital at uh, something like forty stitches in his hand one time. He's picking up change out of uh, the boxes, you know, the the paper sure, yeah. boxes. Some guy tried to rob him with a knife, and he wouldn't give him the money. <laughs> Fought the guy and until the guy, nickels and dimes. Yeah, that's, you're not taking my money. And uh, God, he was just, you know, they were just, just really remarkable. But the, you know, we had we had we had guys on the staff that were really doing 
Gary Rouse, the one guy I mentioned, had started a, an all-star football team called Best in the West, uh-huh. and uh, where he had uh, a panel of guys pick the best senior football players in in Washington, Oregon, California, and I think originally maybe Arizona, the Pac-10, uh, the, the Pac-10 states, and uh, and that became huge, and then. There was a we did uh, we did football recruiting. We were it's hard to believe now when you see the paper, but there was a time for about ten years where if you wanted to know where anybody in the nation was going to football college wise, you read our paper because you guys and, had it. Yeah, and with Frank Burleson in basketball and Gary Roush in uh, our our recruiting coverage, we actually. Now, what made you guys think that let's do this? There's a market there. There was a market. And then what gave you that sense? The interest in our paper from outside our area on the the, when we posted those uh, when we posted news on recruiting. You could see it. You could see it. You you, anecdotally, you you know, and they talk about our single copy sales. We've got a rack in West Hollywood. It's always sold out by 9 o'clock in the morning on Tuesdays. Why is that? I'd say because Frank Burleson writes a basketball column on Tuesdays. And uh, so they... And that added, area wanted it. Yeah, Boom. up towards UCLA. Right. And uh, See, do you double the space at that point? Put in twice as many papers? Put in another rack? And, yeah. They, and, uh, and then let's write some more, Frank. Let's do one on Thursday. Yep. And you just... And so our recruiting coverage was the best in the nation, which is hard to imagine for a paper like Long Beach. And now you see the the fuss that's made, out, right. you know, that's made out of it. I mean, it. ESPN covers it now. It's oh, silly. It's it's gone way too far. But see, you guys were brilliant in seeing that strategy. The L.A. Times and the other papers at that time just missed the boat on it. Was so late to it, or we, thought it was beneath them. Yeah. Uh, we just we had a blast with it. We we were really, uh, but again, I had I had the people that could do it. You know, Bob Kaiser, an unbelievable writer. Doug Krikorian, great. When did Doug come come on board? Uh, when the Herald closed in '89. Okay. Now, how and did you recruit him? What did you do? We were talking to him, and he lived in Long Beach, and he okay. loves Long Beach, so it was it was natural. I mean, he just transitioned right over to us. And and the interesting thing, you know, Doug and I personality wise are are dramatically different. Oh, I'd say so. But uh, <laughs> but with a but from a newspaper standpoint, we're we're in total harmony. And the and great that's thing, the best. Oh, it is. And the, the great thing about Doug, I remember the first time I I talked to him about doing a column on the Paramount football coach, a local guy, and he was kind of like, well. Oh. But he went and did it. Loved the guy. Got great reaction on the column, and and he he was just priceless to us with that. Loved loved local coaches, athletes, and uh, and then of course he still had all of those amazing contacts he'd had from the Herald. He you know he right. was he was Dodgers, he, Lakers, all that stuff, yeah, right? Particularly Lakers. Wrote that Pat Riley got fired when. Uh, Everybody else was saying he resigned, and and they the other writers spent months trying to debunk uh, Doug's uh, 
Doug's story, and then all of a sudden they just all started saying Pat Riley, who was fired, you know, and he, Doug had been right all along, and we knew he was right because we knew who his sources were. So it was. Uh, it, 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 they were all fun times. When, when, a, when a paper like the Herald's going under, how do you guys react? Do you guys start looking, going, ooh, who can we poach? Do we get in? Is there a bit of heartbreak to watch a, a newspaper die like that in town? Well, you, you know, the Herald, the Herald was different than, than we were. But I, I thought the Herald, I, it was sad. Any, you know, any newspaper, it's like... It's like uh, even if you don't, there's a restaurant row and you don't like a restaurant, you don't want it to go out of business. You want you want there always to be enough choices for for people, sure. and and I think that's one of the things that's really sad about what's going on now in the on the one side that just the reduction of the number of newspapers that are available to people and the different views, and and the fewer the fewer competitors are. I think the less less sense there is of a need to be really good, uh, competent. Not good's not the right word. Competence the right word. And uh, and I always I always admired the Herald. I I thought the Herald wrote to its sports marketplace better than any of us. Why is it, that? Well, it just they had a better sense. They just. Uh, maybe we're a little more focused. I mean, like in our case, we had to be local and and regional, okay. and in some cases national. They just they fought, they focused on the pro sports, a little bit of high school, but not a lot. Pro sports, horse racing, boxing. You know, they were. I mean, they were a blue collar sports section, and the people they had doing that were really good at it. Right? Because wasn't Alan. Alan Malamud was a brilliant columnist. Melvin Durslag was kind of the sophisticate on the on the team. And yeah, know, Alan's the only reason why I started picking up the LA Times because when he moved and went there, I said, "Okay, I asked my parents, can we get the Times?" Yeah, and Alan was Alan was a, in a special category. Melvin was was really remarkable. Kaiser and uh, and Doug and and uh, Kaiser. Bob was there too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He he was covering UCLA. That's and then, right. And That's then he did he did some web stuff before he came to us. But boy, he's a he he's a he's a really special newspaper man. He's he he researches meticulously, and and then he puts the he writes he presents the information really well, which is a which is a really really. Uh, difficult skill. It's kind of like you were talking before about an independent contractor who's good at a skill and also good at being in business. Right. And and those those people thrive. Bob Bob could do the reporting, and then he can write on it effectively. And so he's he's a real special cut of newspaper man. Having somebody like like Doug, did you just let him go? He was such a, a big personality. I remember when he would come around the pyramid, he was big. I, I did a story with him and Joe one time when they had their radio show. I mean, did you, someone like that, you just cut loose and go, go for it, Doug. You do your thing. You, 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 the interesting thing about Doug is, is we again, we worked really well together. And he, and, and he quickly had a sense that uh, the press telegram was different than the register that he and he and he made the adjustments. He he uh, 
It, it's it's interesting, <laughs> but there's uh, he his personality uh, made people envious of him. Okay, and uh, and his notes columns on Friday where he would list the names of all these local yokels and yeah. do all of these things. Right, used to used to drive some of the other other editors nuts. He he writes too much about his friends. His columns are too long. And and I and my I just said you, you know what, you guys need to find somebody just like him and give him a whole page. That, that he, he, there's there's nobody at the Press Telegram that gets as much Friday readership as Doug does. And uh, uh, so my my feeling my feeling was uh, he, you know you you have different parameters for different people. Again, it goes back to what I was telling you before that I learned in photography. Creative people don't don't need a lot of structure. They they need they they need uh, resources, and they need encouragement. And and I'll give you an example. I come up with an idea for a story or something, and it would and in my mind it required some depth. So I'd give it to somebody like Bob, or or in some cases Doug. Uh, McCurdy could do it really well when he was there. You, you 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 give them a story idea and you explain what you're looking for and they go out and they come back and it's completely different than what you explained you wanted and almost invariably it's imminently better <laughs> because uh, almost almost without exception and so I, I was blessed I was I think I was blessed with that understanding and and I was blessed to have people that could could produce, right. and so I it, it was great, and it, you know to be truthful towards the end of my career, the uh, the dynamics were changing. There was there was uh, there was more self centeredness in the younger reporters, and less interest in being regarded with with respect by the older the older people and and not and not really i don't know it was just different i i mean the the guys that i'd grown up with and worked with and the and a lot of the guys i hired that they just uh early on they just they just each had their own level of integrity and i and i think if you have personal integrity and and a, a, your own sense of responsibility. Then I don't have to tell you how to represent the paper. Your your priority is representing yourself well, and if you do that, you're going to represent the paper well. And so I had I had dozens of those guys, and during particularly the early part of my career, and it was getting different. Uh, was it just the way those those right young writers were being taught and raised? I think I, I or think priorities. I think it was. I think it was. Uh, I think it was the evolution of the business and the education. You know, virtually every every guy that I grew up with, we we started out covering high school sports. Many of us when we were in high school, right? And so we learned to keep our own stats. Uh, we learned to keep our own play by play, and uh, and we learned to talk to coaches that really weren't skilled in interviews and and uh, 
being in dark and cold places and trying to get things done and get a story. And then as as things evolved and and uh, the age requirements for being able to work, you know, got older and and uh, so all of a sudden it, it, you're you're getting college graduates. So you get a you get a college graduate from from UCLA or University of Texas or USC. Well, they're if if they're good, in which most of them were, their junior or senior year, they're covering USC football. They're sitting in a press box, guys handing them stats by the quarter, handing them a play-by-play. Interviews are arranged, uh, and then they come to you and you tell them. I want you to go up to North Long Beach and call it, cover Jordan Milliken High School football. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> you, you know, it's and yeah. but for okay, where's the parking pass? <laughs> I, you won't believe it. They didn't have any stats. They didn't have any play. They didn't have a program. I had to ask coach who number twenty two was. Yeah, but and and the difference is, the difference is those of us. That started like covering high school football and, and and high school sports. We still love it. Oh God! I, I mean, I, if you gave me the choice of covering a Rams game or La Mirada, yeah, I'm at La Mirada all day long, all day long. And it doesn't even have to be the varsity game. You can give me the freshman game at three o'clock. Yep. I'll be out of there by four thirty. I got the nice light. I park in the front row. Coach says hello, hi. Might recognize a referee. Not happening in a Rams game. Nope. And and in in a Rams game, you're restricted in in where you can be, and half the people standing around you are photographing with their phones. Right. So it's plus I got to be there four hours early. I got all these people I got to deal with. I got to wear a vest. I can't go here. I can't do that. Yeah. Not no chance in hell. So uh, it's it, it just 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 like the travel we were talking about. Bingo Long and the Traveling All-Stars. That's what it was like then, and it's not like that now. And your access to the players and their players' reaction to you and appreciation of you is far different. You know, they've they've all, particularly the, the elite athletes, are, uh, you know, they've got a posse and, and handlers, and, and so dealing with them when I, you know, when I, when I was doing it, I... I uh, a lot of Olympic athletes used to train at Long Beach State. Yeah. So I, so I, I walk out on the field anytime I want. And just talk to Dwight Stone. Yeah. There's Dwight Stone jumping yep. over the I, bar. I, he he went to the sportscasters luncheon one time and out in uh, got it's out towards uh, Pierce College. It was way out in the valley, and and it, we went in his Porsche. So and Ron Alice is in the passenger seat and Dwight's in the. And Dr- Dwight's driving, and I'm laying across whatever that thing is behind the two <laughs> front seats, and he never stops. It was before the Olympics where he won the bronze medal. Everybody thought he was going to win the gold, and didn't quite work out for him. But uh, and never stopped talking. Go up, and then he's he's up there, and he speaks, and we come back, and you know that's not going to happen now. No, you're not, you're not going to do that. No. But I, uh, I was in Madison. I was at Madison Square Garden for a basketball game. That one I told you about yeah. earlier. Well, uh, one of the nights while while I was there, they had Melrose indoor games, and Stones was oh. Stones was jumping. So, so I went to the, I went to that, 
and he sets an indoor world record, seven, seven, something, seven, seven and a quarter, something unbelievable. Just flies the thing. I mean, he probably could have jumped ten feet. Uh, so I, so I talked to him and did a story for the paper. I and he stopped, didn't jump again. And so I said to him, he, he he was great. I said to him, God, you were you were out of your mind jumping. Why you, you set a record? Why'd you quit? He says they only paid me for one record. <laughs> you, you know why would you know even if you're even if you're at your best thing ever, why would you keep adding to that record and make it tough tougher to break a record <laughs> later on when there's more? And it was now if anybody's listening to this podcast. Please go to an indoor track meet. There the is nothing best. better. Oh, it's fantastic. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, Those they, days when Mount Sac was rocking back and, in the 80s yeah, would be the, full of people. In the sports arena. Yes. Hopefully Mount Sac will be back. The new stadium is supposed to be spectacular, yeah. and hopefully everything will be in order. Now you my have, favorite. What's that? My favorite thing to shoot now uh, is a Masters high school masters track me oh yeah top top eight kids in southern california go only, only finish heats you know you're not you're not run they're not running prelims nope and uh winner takes all go for yeah, it it's glorious love it you had three things that happened under your watch i wanted to talk to you about one was constant so you had the 84 olympics how did you guys handle that we had a blast. You know, they that was the first time. Uberoff and all of those people were really uh, good about managing the Olympics, and uh, and they did a they did a really great job with local credentialing. Normally, they they don't do much. You get one or two credentials or whatever, right? But Long Beach had uh, five sports. And so we had credentials for all of those, and then we had credentials for everything we needed to get into in L.A. And, excuse me, we had really good people covering everything. You guys should have won the Pewitzer that year. Bruce uh, Chambers should have won the Pewitzer. They, they, that's that's uh, a gnarly one for us because his Mary Decker photos were in, in, in exceptional. And uh, the... Uh, uh, the register just sent a collection of Olympic photos and they actually changed the rule and accepted the collection as opposed to a, a live sports right. thing. Bruce finished second. And you're right. That, you're on that one. Yeah, by far. I think his, his images are better than Dave Barnett's. Granted, Dave's are in color. You guys are black and white. But as a whole, he should have taken that prize. And it was the... And it was the uh, story of the Olympics. Yeah. And the anecdote to that was he was late getting there and got stuck in a spot that he normally wouldn't have been shooting from. Right, <laughs> and, right. And then Decker takes a tumble right in right front, in front of, him. of him. Hey, take what you can get. Exactly. That's so when you've got a young dog like that, he's out there just killing it for 17 days. Do you guys do anything and pat him on the back and pull him in and say, damn, good job. No, they, they were they were really appreciative. And and. And that was another thing that that paper produced a lot of really good sports photographers. Matt Lee and yes, and Bruce uh, Bruce was exceptional. Mike Rondo, Peggy Petey, and uh, well, those people helped make your sports section. Oh, uh, they go clear back to when I started. When I started, they had a couple sports photographers: Skip Schumann, who's still alive, lives in Sacramento. 
great guy, uh, and Bob Shumway. They shot a lot of our sports, and they and the thing that they taught me was uh, they always came back not only with a good photo but a relevant photo. Okay, and and there's a lot of them unless unless you're. Matt Brown, a Matt Lee, a Rondo, guys that, or not, it doesn't have to be guys. Peggy Petey was the same way. Sure. People that understand sports, uh, they, they, they don't understand how crucial that is. The, the, the photo needs to be as relevant as the story, not just a great, not just a nice or great image. That was one thing that I, I kind of struggled with photography uh, when I was a manager because there were times uh, when they'd send a photographer who normally didn't shoot sports but it had always wanted to shoot a World Series game or something and you go mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got guys that want to cover a World Series game but they're not my best World Series guys so they're not going right so uh, but you know that's just difference in philosophies now you always had every year April the Long Beach Grand Prix how did you guys handle that and push to make that more interesting and find a story and not get into Groundhog's Day? Uh, well, the the Grand Prix was with just a million stories. That, that thing was, it was exhausting to cover, uh, but it was... Uh, it overtook the city. Yeah, it did. So, so it was really easy. And, and one of, one of, one of, uh, one of my philosophies was, you know, we can't uh, we can't outcover, outstaff any of the other the major papers at a, at a World Series game or at a, at uh, the Rose Bowl or something. We'll send maybe two people and a photographer, or whatever. But anybody that comes into our town, they're they're not going to cover the event better than we do. Right. And and we always had really skilled people, and everybody was invested in it. And of course, our newsroom staff was really aggressive. And, and well, I, I always enjoyed it because if I used to cover it, I would see all the photographers at the event, like, oh, hey, 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 there's George. I mean, everybody yep. was there. You everybody, had everybody on green on race day was there. And uh, in a tower, in a blimp, in a this, in a corner, top of the right. arena. What? It, yeah, they and, and the photography was always really good, and so was the writing. Uh, and then. Uh, so that that you knew that was coming, and that and the Long Beach Marathon. So those were two things we had a lot of experience with. My my favorite coverage of, of team coverage from the paper was in two thousand four, when they had the U.S. Swim Trials in Long Beach. Yes, they built uh, a pool right in the parking yeah, lot. They built they built two pools in the parking lot, and uh, and and. My, I wasn't responsible for the coverage, so I was particularly proud of it. But my goal was uh, that we we were going to cover uh, we were going to cover the trials better than anybody ever had, and uh, so we we did everything and and got great cooperation from our higher editors and then from the newsroom and we had a now what makes it what says to you okay we're going to cover it better what does that mean what are you going to do start earlier on reporting and the whole process like what makes it better you just look for one of the things you look for are things that are going to be fun and and then things that are going to be special so one of we took one page 
And, you, you know, I think the trials were like six days long. They go quite a while. Yeah, they do. But we built a page where each day we added a photo of a person that had made the Olympic team. They'd, they'd finish first or second, and, and we'd have the event, and, and they run. And so we just ultimately, over the course of the week, built an entire page of faces of the people that had made the Olympic team. And, you know, Rich Foster was really in, involved in the management of the thing. And he, he told us when it, when it was over that uh, the uh, head of USA Swimming said they'd never seen coverage like that anywhere. So they, they were thrilled. And, and so were we. And we did people stories and features. And, and you know, the PR people there, it was Steve Brenner's group. And, and right. uh, uh young lady named Laura Potter actually ran the ran the process and they they anything we needed we got and it, it was it was magical that's all you ask for you know, it was it was uplifting for everybody it just meant in the in the paper and the community but in the paper everybody at the paper was really excited they they made us all 2004 Olympic swim team T-shirts at the end and stuff, which which was fun. Nice momento. I still have mine. <laughs> and, and the last one, how did you guys handle September 11th? Now, and because that's weird to ask the sports editor, the guy who runs the sports section, but sports shut down. Actually, I was in the newsroom when that happened. Oh, you were. Yeah, I was. Oh, I, so then you were really sitting in it. Yeah, ninety from ninety seven. About 2000 through 2001, I was in the newsroom as as a senior editor. I managed the photo department, was a religion editor, a news editor, and uh, so we. Uh, I was uh, I was actually in in my office here doing a couple things, and Joan was still at Fullerton College, and she and she went in early to to work out and saw on the on the uh on the tv in the in the that uh uh schulte uh fitness center that the plane had hit the uh, trade center so she called me and i turned on and had a little tv in here and i and then i called uh rich our managing editor at home and, and said a plane had just hit the tw- twin towers and and so we just all scrambled from there and and we always, it's, it's it, you know, there's a macabre side to journalism, and and uh, we always had this, we always had this theory that uh, Long Beach was the axis of evil because no matter what happened, there was going to be some Long Beach tie to it. <laughs> and uh, you know, when the guy, I don't know if you remember, but several years ago, a guy shot up a subway in New York and mm-hmm. and uh, turned out he'd bought the gun in Long Beach. I mean, it's clear across <laughs> the nation and a guy that I don't know that ever lived here, didn't live here very long, but he was in Long Beach long enough to buy the gun. And so there, we always, you know, we always had that sense that any, any catastrophic news, there was going to be a Long Beach angle and there were, there were two or three people on the planes that died. And so, uh, it was just uh, all hands on deck, and and uh, and obviously very sobering. I was I was also in the uh, I was also in the uh, 
press telegram building when Kennedy was killed. So that was in 1963. I was coming up the stairs to go to work in the afternoon and at the ambassador, right? The ambassador hotel. No, I'm I'm talking about JFK. JFK. That's right. No, no, no. That's right. And, uh, some guy came running down the stairs towards the press room saying that Kennedy's just been shot. So there have been some there have been some bright nights there and some uh, some really stark ones too. But I love that place, Sixth and Pine. The paper moved in there in about 1930. You it, literally grew up there. I did, and it went. And you know, it was a magical place, uh, and. One of the reasons I retired in 2006, I was ready to retire, but one of the reasons I retired in 2006 is in, in September, is in November, they were moving out of the building. They'd sold it and they were leaving. I didn't want to, I didn't, they were going into this, yeah, one of the new shiny towers down and, you know, glass windows overlooking the bay. And, and, uh, I just said, no, nah, I don't, I don't want to do that. I, I love this place and what it meant to me. Right. So I traded that view, which I had no windows for this view, which <laughs> pretty good trade, isn't it? Much better trade, much better <laughs> trade. How did you handle, like, in those 90s and the early 2000s when you could feel and sense the papers starting to restrict? Budgets, internet's coming in. How did you handle that? From the editor's side, from the management side, well, you you, you deal with it with with frustration, and and one of the things, one of the thing, uh, one of the things that I, you know, and kind of in my Pollyanna view, it was uh, newspapers or newspapers always wanted more profit, and I, I mean, in their golden era, uh, they would. Uh, They'd be making 15, 20, 25% profit. And if they were making 15, they'd want 18. If they were making 18, they'd want 22. And if they're making 22, they'd want 26. So every time we turned around, every time we turned around, we were in contingency. I'd, you know, I'd have an opening. I'd be ready to hire somebody. uh, And they'd say, well, there's a hiring freeze. And and, uh, (laughs) because we only made 19%. Exactly. And I, you know, the, Cost of newsprint was all over the map, which was a huge expense. That would and that and people were were uh, the the biggest issues. So you 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 were uh, constantly annoyed by by all of that. But you live within your realities. And again, I was in such a in my department. I was in such a good place because I had so many good people working with me. And even though they gr- it grumbled a lot, the community really appreciated what we were doing. So we were f- grateful for that. And then, you know, in, in retrospect, we were rich beyond measure. I mean, I mean certainly by today's standards. In, uh, in 19, I think it was 1992 when, the, when there was Olympics, we had reporters at... at uh, 28 international, national, and state competitions of consequence. We had a Little League team in the World Series. We sent three people to the Little League thing. Uh, we had reporters in. We had reporters at the Olympics, World Series, All Star Game, uh, 
you know, the Super Bowl, obviously, all the time. Right. Uh, NBA, NBA championship. Uh, and and everywhere Long Beach State went. And my travel budget that year, I think, was about just short of $100,000. And by the end of it, you know, before they before they just completely de- depleted the department, a reporter had to had to get permission to, to get mileage to go to R- Riverside to cover a Long Beach State Riverside basketball game. So, oh. when uh, when I was a beat writer, uh, when I was a beat writer, I covered uh, three hundred and forty four consecutive Long Beach State basketball games wherever they went: Alaska, Hawaii, New York, wherever they went, I went. And the only the only football game I missed in that span was uh, I didn't cover. They played Louisville in the in the uh, in Pasadena in the Junior Rose Bowl. Okay. And and uh, I didn't cover that game because I chose uh, to go to uh, Milwaukee and cover Long Beach State basketball against Marquette. I thought that would be a. I thought they could handle a football game. Without you, yeah. Without unless me. you had some beers with your old friend Al, <laughs> <laughs> I got, I'm going. I'm going to hang out with Al. <laughs> so, uh, just was it a struggle to deal with the paper shrinking that way? Uh, yeah, because you're because you see people either taking buyouts or people you really respect, and you and you, you obviously recognize uh, your ability to cover things that's going to shrink. But but you still just you still just compete, and uh, and that's what we did. I don't I don't remember uh, I don't remember it being uh, well. I just remember it being reality. Right. And and now, frankly, whenever any of us get together uh, and talk about it, we usually just say, if we'd have known how much fun we were having, we would have we'd have had a better time. Right. Because we we really were. You had no idea how good it was until exactly. party's over, and, and you're like, you know, that's one of the lessons of life uh, is, uh, is, you, is if you're not careful, if you, if you don't have a sense of gratitude to begin with, then you're going to overlook an awful lot of wonderful things. Yeah, I mean that's so true. At what point then are you deciding? Okay, it, it's time. Was it the move? Was it them moving, or was it like you had just done enough? Uh, it, it was uh, it, 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 it was just a, a feeling that the, the time was right. There, wa- there was an influence. I did not, I did, I did not want to move out of the building. I didn't want to work any, in any other building. And it, and it's, it's interesting because I, I, you know, I always had a nice relationship with Long Beach State. And r- right after I left, uh, the paper of. Steve Janish out of nowhere left as the SID at mm-hmm. Long Beach State. So Long Beach State actually offered me the job of sports information director there. Okay. And uh, and I thought about it for a while, and I said, and I just thought, no, Boy, I wish you would have taken it. I'm done. <laughs> I uh, I I want to spend time. With my grandkids, I want to spend time with my wife, Joan. You know, it, the, the life I led. They, uh, I'll tell you a story. One time, 
uh, you know, your hours are so unpredictable when you're the boss when, when you're an editor. And so we, we had something planned with the family and all the grandkids were here. And, uh, I was supposed to be home at a certain time and, uh, and I was late and I, and it kept getting later (laughs) and later and, and the, the adult women are, are really annoyed and the, and the kids are kind of getting worked up because I'm not here. They were, they were like probably in 14 down or some 12 down or something like that. So any, anyway, my grandson Garrett, he, he says to, he says to Joan, we need a new ampy. He was just <laughs> tired of waiting. But then I got home and I come through the door and they all run and hug me. So Ampy's home. So everything was cool. And I, I, I always I always remembered that because I've we've had such special times with those kids, and unbelievable times with Joan. So I, I was ready, and we talked about the job. It would have been interesting. It would have supplemented retirement income for a while, and and it, and it and I'd always had a curiosity about how to. But it involved a lot of travel. I would have been the I would have been the guy with the men's basketball team, and and so I would have been away from home. A lot, and and I just said, I just told him, you know what, I'm I'm done. And I and when I was when I was done, I was done, and I was really at peace with it. The only thing I've missed, well, there would just be periodic times where I'd see something or see a story, and I'd think, God, it'd be great to work with Frank Burleson. Though I love working with or Doug or Bob or or some of these right. some of the other people on the staff. I had again a great staff, but the thought wouldn't last for long. And, uh, and well, they inducted you into their Hall of Fame in '97, so you'd have been like the first Hall of Fame inductee who's still actually working at the school. <laughs> yeah. That that was a shock. I. I uh, and and that way, you know, I told you how complicated Rich uh, was. I I I was on the selection committee, but for some reason that year I wasn't there, or maybe they had a meeting where they didn't tell me that. <laughs> but anyway, I I got a call at home and uh, from Dee Dee Rossi, uh-huh. and she's and she said, "Congratulations, you you know you've been chosen for it." And I told her, I, I can't do that. I'm, I cover you guys. I can't. I can't. Uh, I can't accept that. And and uh, so she said, "Well, talk to your talk to your boss about it." And so I went in the next day and told Rich. And God, he was just thrilled. I mean, he was beside himself. They bought. He said, "Absolutely, you have to accept it." And. Uh, and that's just another one of those moments when the right guy at the right time had the right thing to say to me. And I don't know, they bought 35 or 40 tickets to the thing. And, uh, and so it was, re- it was really special. And obviously to be recognized uh, in, in any form like that positively is, is a delight. So that was, that's something I didn't expect. I don't particularly feel like I belong in there, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I love I, that you are in there. Well, thank you. It was my first year covering that year. Oh, is that right? Yeah, 96, wow. 97. And there's this guy. Well, look at this fancy young lad. <laughs> <laughs> in there is okay. So if I say the gold mine, what what does that bring to your senses? Oh, just an amazing gym. 
it's uh, it, there are there are so many there are so many great memories in that tiny gym from uh, and and the noise and the excitement and the passion of the students. Uh, lots lots of good memories of one year that the that the all of the fans had that was probably that was that would have been before you you started in 84 but everybody had four by five four wooden blocks and they yeah. bang them together and teams that actually bring chairs and set out in the middle of the floor because they couldn't couldn't hear on the because they sat on the first right row of the bleachers as it was the bench but I, i'll tell you the uh a lot of great volleyball in that gym from Brian's teams, and and uh, it's amazing he he won in a place oh, he, like that. Oh, he was incredible. He was very innovative and uh, very exciting volleyball. I'll tell you, assuming you want my gold mine memory. Yes, I do. Because uh, I, I remember walking into this place going, a story for the paper, the Register, and I walked in going. A division one team plays in here, like in in here. Yep. Holy Christ! I was stunned. I thought Titan Gym was teeny. Oh yeah, it or was. Crawford Hall for Irvine. Yep. But this place was a glorified high school gym. At best. Yeah, at best. Yeah. Yeah, barely hold two thousand. Joan and I were there. We actually took a one of the editors and his wife from the paper to a to a women's game. Their first game of the first game of the season, uh, and they they just come to town, so they didn't know anything about Long Beach State. But anyway, Joan Bonvasini's team was opening the season with a with an exhibition game against uh, the Russian national team, this gigantic team, and so they they play them. Uh, they play them even the whole game. Russia goes goes ahead by one with about uh, I don't know less than ten seconds to go, and uh, Long Beach inbounds the ball to a to a freshman guard named Dana Wilkerson, who's now the athletic director at Linwood High School. She goes coast to coast and puts in a lay-in over two of these gigantic Russians. I mean they. <laughs> And the place just melted down. Long Beach beat, beat them by one at the at the buzzer, and it was it was just madcap. It, and the you know the friends we brought who had never seen a Long Beach State, right. <laughs> got You got to think they were impressed. Yeah, if so, you're going to take them to one, that's the one. Oh, it was it was sweet. Do you watch any sports and try? Are you? writing a story in your head or are you trying to figure out how you would write the story or can you just sit through a sporting event to be honest with you i'm if it, if the sporting event is important to me i don't watch very much of it i i don't, I don't want to spend the energy <laughs> being being all uh, all agitated like the uh, like the other day ucla gonzaga I I watched a Western movie and then on commercials I'd click back and see and and you know you'd see about a minute of and and I I'd, so I actually missed the game winner but you know they were replaying it when I uh, uh, so I don't I like we like to watch both Joan and I like to watch golf on TV and 
and we have been angel fans, but we're not. We're so disappointed with the injection into politics of all the professional sports. We're really kind of not engaged right now. It's, yeah, I mean, I mean, and that's what I wanted to ask you. Great segue. Thank you. Should be my co-host. co-host. <laughs> is how, how is it? How does that feel for you as a, as a sports editor and a man who loves sports? This absolute injection, and I'm not talking 68 Mexico City, but I mean now you're pulling out all-star games out of you know out of states, and everybody's got a an a slant one way or another. The women's soccer team, NBA basketball players. I mean, it, don't you just want to watch a game? You do, you you do, and you and you also wish that that everybody would just kind of take a deep breath because I, I, I'm sure your life is much like mine. It's filled with wonderful people. Yeah. The, the, these, these narratives that we hear constantly, I'm, I, I'm sure there's some truth in some of them. I mean, there are, there are bad people all over the place. But when you, when you, Go drive towards the glass is half empty, and I think glass is about three quarters full. And if the if the same energy was placed towards solving problems instead of either exacerbating them or creating them, uh, we could fix things in no time. But uh, the uh, the self righteousness of all of this virtue signaling. You know, uh, the, the like Major League Baseball pulling the pulling the All Star Game out of Atlanta. Uh, they couldn't have done any research on on exactly what the bill meant, and and their their headquarters are in a state where the election laws are far more egregious than than Georgia's, and they just signed a they just signed a multi billion dollar contract with China that has. Uh, that has horrific human rights oh, yeah. violations, and and yet they're going to set in judgment on uh, on the people of Georgia in a in what is a false narrative, uh, or at least an incomplete narrative. So so it's I, I just I, I really just don't have time for it. I, I you know we get I get all the sports I need now. Uh, I golf with friends. I, I you can watch golf, and you're not going to get tangled up in the politics. Uh, uh, you can uh, you can watch some college sports where it's where it's good or or as we discussed earlier you, you know just find a local high school game and you know God bless the CIF I've been retired well 15 years now in September and they they still allow me to have a pass so and everywhere you go people are gracious so I can I can see all the sports entertainment I want I mean. In fact, yeah, you can walk across the street and you're ready to go. You got exactly. a school right there, and and, and you know it's it's uh, it, when it went. I haven't watched ESPN in, in over a year just just because it became so, so tedious. It's, it, I think one of the things that distracts, disappoints me is at at my time in the business of. Uh, there was a certain degree of celebrity among among the really good. Doug obviously had great celebrity. People who were people who were good writers had had their audience and stuff. Mm-hmm. But but the stories and the games were never ultimately about them. Now you watch uh, 
you watch so much of this, and I, I keep saying, man, I made a living doing that, you know, the coverage of things, but uh, the cute the cute guys in the in the tight suits and the and and their banter and stuff, and it's just like, nah, tiresome. <laughs> just gets tiresome. Yeah, and it's all and it's also like I, I listened to Petros and Money for a while, and and those guys are amazingly diverse in their knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not only sports but music and and entertainment and and life and and everything. And they're they're, they're really quite bright guys, but they communicate. To the level of a fourth grade dropout, <laughs> you know, their audience can't be that that vapid, uh, uh, and so you know, it's just like, oh, I'd like to listen to these guys because I like what they say, but then they go on these silly just, tangents, and you're wondering yeah, where am I doing it? Well, okay, so that's where I've always kind of wondered: was it Long Beach's fault for the paper to die? Did the did the city? of Long Beach let down the paper. People stop reading or people stop getting the paper. It's not like the newsstands went away, but like readership was at, at one point quarter million. And then at the very end, I mean, you couldn't give the paper away. What happened? Well, I, th- I think, I think evolution happened. The, 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 the crucial part of the demise of, uh, of the press telegram like almost every other paper in that doesn't have a benefactor like a Bezos or somebody like that, it's it's, it's almost a toy. They have billions of dollars, right. and, and so the the money at the, when the, when the when the paper was family owned by the Ritters, uh, it was uh, it was solvent, and even and then even when it became the Knight Ritters, and even when it became public publicly held as a stock. Uh, it uh, it held its own, and and in the circumstances of all of the papers, it was always profitable. And there's an, there's there's some natural complications in in Long Beach. Long Beach is uh, typically identified as the most diverse large city in America. So there are language issues. There, there are segments of Long Beach that that have no experience with newspapers. There might be a language issue, uh, and uh, so th- there were some dynamics that were difficult to meet. But, but the the advertising support in the paper was good, and even as recently, I haven't heard in the last two or three years. But before that, the paper always made a profit. But when it was bought by Dean Singleton. And Singleton had uh, had this grand idea of of a monster newspaper chain, and so he kept buying papers. He ultimately, when his when his house of cards fell apart, had a billion dollars in loans to buy newspapers. Well, he had newspapers all over the place, but but the profit level up, above your expenses that you would have to, you know, it's like the America, America's national debt. It's, right. it's crushing. And so then he, he ended up selling and, and now a paper like the press telegram is, uh, it's owned by a hedge fund. And, and those guys are legendary for just, you know, scraping as much meat off the bones as they Slash can. Slash and, and burn. Yeah. yeah. And that, and so that's what happened. I, 
I really think, even now, I think the press telegram probably has about 60 or 70,000 customers. And I, and I think done right, uh, it could, it could still be a profitable and effective newspaper. You, you, you know, if you, if you, if you look at the papers around here that are just, you know, the the register, they's it's is so small now. They should put a rock in it when they leave it on your news on your driveway so it won't blow away. But if you go to towns like the first paper I worked at in Medford or Grants Pass, Oregon, where uh, where uh, my grandchildren and my daughter live. They're more community owned and community based, and so they have their own they have their own profit issues. Okay, and uh, and they and they remain a really really viable news source. They're both good local newspapers, and they're profitable. Profitable, but if when you get into these groups, and and the, and the profit and and the obli- and if there are loan obligations, which there almost always are. Hedge funds, they, I think they pay cash and then just take as much out of it as they can. But uh, so, so that's the problem. I think, I think, uh, I, th- I think the market's still there for a wisely run newspaper. But I don't know that you could do it in a group unless you, unless you let each newspaper function independently. Right. Like right. if you take you take the group that the Press Telegram and the Register are, are in the same newspaper group, makes total sense to have one guy cover the Angels for both teams. Right. And and the Dodgers and the, and the, and the Rams and the Chargers. The, the, those things make sense. But you uh, you, you need enough resources to have a sound local coverage because that's, city council meetings yes, and planning exactly. and yeah. knowing knowing what the issues are and right. stuff. Right, because the guy in Simi Valley who's also covering the daily news does not give a rat's ass what's happening in Newport. Certainly doesn't happen with, with the Long Beach, you know, Harbor. Like it's no. not not the same thing. No, it's not. And then the and then they've you know the, in the in the efficiency of the production they have one guy laying out papers from from uh, Santa Ana to or wherever the register is now to up to up to Northern California and stuff. And right. so there's a lot of redundant copy and there's Valley copy in the, in the press telegram, which, you know, nobody wants to read. So. Right. Nobody. That's worthless. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time. I mean, this is, uh, I, I, I wanted to sit down and talk to you, but you know, this gives me an excuse because we haven't seen each other at Fullerton college games. Yeah, our sideline yeah, side conversations our side, are yes. a blast. Yeah. I, they I got, look. they got shut down because of COVID, but, uh, this is Maybe a, in the fall. Yes, it will. Phil has promised me there, there will be sports in August and September, and we'll be out there rubbing elbows and making pictures and shooting some football. Well, it, this has been fun for me too, Matt. Both because I really enjoy our conversations, but it, it's it's nice to uh, carry on a conversation that's as personalized as this with somebody that understands what the business was and is and right so i mean you made it easy it's um i want people to listen to this who are younger so they have an idea of like not like oh sit around that we had it the good old days but just understand like how to develop a story and how to work on things and it doesn't always have to be you have to be at the rams game you could be at a la mirada game and it can be just as exciting and you can have better access come up with a better story and you're going to be a better person for it well and and the the truth is people are 
are more interested in information now than they've ever been. And the, and the opportunities to present information are boundless and they're, and they're, they're really quite accessible. I mean, if I wanted to do a podcast, I could do a podcast. If I wanted to do a blog, I could do a blog. The, the key is that whatever you focus on, make sure that it's, it's not dominated by your personality or your opinion, but with information that's going to help the people that read it or listen to it. Right. And then over time, you'll find success. I don't, I don't have any doubt of that. There's, there's just, there are great opportunities out there. They're just different than they were when I was 18, 19, 20, 21. Right. Well, with that great uh, piece of... Uh, <laughs> deep thoughts from deep, Jim. Deep thoughts from Jim. That'll be the next podcast we'll start. The Deep Thoughts with Jim. Uh, and a little chime right behind yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> You're the best. I can't, I can't thank you enough. Well, that was fun, Matt. Thanks. Anytime. This is Matt Brown, and you listen to Just a Good Conversation. Please hit the subscribe button.